All right, everybody, welcome to Sports Cards Live. This is show number nine, live show number nine. Tonight, my guest is Brian Gray from Leaf Trading Cards, someone most of you are probably familiar with. He's got a great online presence on Twitter, especially. Before we bring him out, I just want to thank last Wednesday's guest, Karn Rye. We had an awesome discussion about grading by computer and RASs, what are RASs and all that. So go take a look at that if you want to know anything about razzing or grading by computer. It was a great, great discussion. I'm also going to announce this Wednesday, Sports Cards Live at 10 o'clock Eastern. My guest is Barry Grace. He's a longtime, very passionate collector out of Colorado. Looking forward to having Barry join me on Wednesday. Then on Saturday, which is May the uh, 16th, I have none other than the owner of ComC, Tim Getch, will be joining me here to talk about everything, the hobby during right during the crisis, as well as uh, his company, ComC. Really excited about that. And again, Brian Price from President's Choice Trading Cards will be joining me on May the 23rd. But tonight we have Brian Gray from Leaf Trading Cards. Brian is, uh, you know, he, he's somebody who's been around. He's a big player in the hobby. We're all familiar with him. So let's bring on Brian. Brian, welcome to Sports Cards Live, my friend. It's great to have you on. Welcome to the show. Good to see you, buddy, too. Good to see you. It's, Thanks, man. Maybe it's like this instead of at the Expo last weekend. I know. It would have been good to see you at the Expo at all, as it always is. You know, I just want to let the viewers know, um, you know, I didn't just cold call you to come on the show here. You actually volunteered. I've we've actually known each other for over ten years now. Sure. I think I first probably met you at a national, probably 2010, and we we know some people in common in in the business. And so uh, we actually, I remember, um, I remember it was late night. I remember playing poker together. There was a yeah, big table. There were probably ten guys around the table, and uh, I got to tell you, you don't want to play against me ever again because I know your tell, and I'm not kidding. I like it, but you know what? I've, I've taken like an FBI class where you learn how to get false tells. So yeah. you better be careful. I've done lots of I've done lots of homework in how to deceive and uh, be clever when it comes to poker only. Okay. But, uh, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I hope I'm doing it again. I hope you're putting that to work over the last ten years because I, I'm I'm up for the challenge. Let's get a game going again if next expo, time. For, uh, if the expo happens anytime in the next year, we'll do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Love to. So listen, you, you've been a guy who's been um, with your, with, with, with leaf trading cards, you've been set up at nationals, set up at expos. You're, you're known to walk through the aisles at both shows and I've been to both and you've been to my booths and you bought lots of cards off me over the years, every show. It's always a treat when you come by and you're very fair, love selling you cards for your repack products with leaf and other, other uh, endeavors that you have. And we'll get into your endeavors a little bit later. I also want to mention that last year at Chicago, we actually took in a, a concert together. Do you, do you remember which one I'm talking about? Oh, Barry Manilow, baby. Who doesn't love Barry Manilow? Copacabana, baby. Copacabana. Yeah. You gotta love yep. Barry Manilow. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then yeah. I remember afterwards, I don't, I don't remember if you came with us, but we went to the casino there and uh, we were actually playing roulette with Alan Iverson. Were you there for yeah, that? I was there. I was there. Yeah. That was a cool night. Those were I fun. think Alan stayed long, long, long after the rest I of the I left well before uh, Iverson left the show. Uh, the, the I, said, I think you're still at that table when I flew home the next time. <laughs> could be, <laughs> could be, could be. So listen, um, first of all, thanks again for joining me. You know, a lot of people are interested in what you have to say. Um, so let, let's get into it. Why don't you give us a bit of a background into, I mean, we all know what you're doing today. You're the CEO of Leaf Trading Cards. You're, you're, make, you're making a dent in the hobby. You've got your, you've got your piece of the pie. 
why don't you give us a bit of a history about kind of where you started and what brought you into the hobby and through to where we are today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not how you, how you get here is an interesting story where you're at, but how you got here is just as important, I think. Um, I think when I started, I started as a collector in the 1980s. I was a young kid. I mean, I'm only 47 now, so I'm not an old guy, even though my gray hair starts looking like it. But, um, you know, I've been a collector since the 1980s. Um, I did my first card show New Year's Eve weekend of 1988. I remember 88 Donruss had just come out. And I took my life savings of $600 and bought three cases of 88 Donruss at Sam's Wholesale Club. I opened the cases, took the cards to the show, sold every card and got like $2,000. I was like, wow, this is easy. So I did it again and again and again for about a year, year and a half. And uh, so I was in business. By the time I was 15, 16 years old, I was in business. So, I mean, I was doing shows all over the country. I mean, so I got started pretty quick as a collector, then a dealer, show dealer. Then I went to work for ProSet in 1990. I thought it would be my dream job. And amazingly, my job was I oversaw a room of 50 women who all they did all day was open packs of ProSet because the error cards had gotten put in the packs and they weren't supposed to. So I was going to say, I was going to say, you're the reason for all those error cards, aren't you? Not me, not me, but we, we pulled them out of packs. So we literally had a group of 50 women who opened packs all day long, every day for about a year. Searching for those. No, they were just opening the packs, pulling those out and throwing the cards back in the box and they got repackaged. Right. I think this is crazy, you know, but that was my job. And then they tried to promote me. But by then I realized that that was not the part of manufacturing I wanted to be in. And uh, Edgeman was one of the biggest distributors in the United States at that point in 1991. Went to work for them. So I've gone from collector to dealer to distributor. Then I, you know, manufacturer. Pro, how long were you pro set for? Only for a year. Okay. Only for a year. And what, what made you leave there and go to uh, Edgeman? Well, the money. I mean, because honestly, at pro set, it was more of an entry level kind of opera. It was not an entry level, it was somewhere in the lower middle opportunity level. But I was going to college at the time. And so I was like, you know what? There's upside here, but there's not crazy upside. And I did like the manufacturing process, but I was in such a, I wasn't in it because I was a kid and ProSet was a bunch of professional expert, business expert kind of guys. So I didn't fit that program. Guys like Victor Schaefer were high up there, you know, from Fanatics, formerly Press Pass. He was a high up there when I was a nobody. Because okay. again, I was 18 years old. So, um, so then I had a chance to go work with Edgeman. I'd met them at shows and things I went to, and I knew these guys. And they were making good money. We built that distribution business to our high point was in 2003 with Yu-Gi-Oh. We did, it was either 120 or $130 million in sales. Then wow. obviously that was up and down every year, whatever. Then I actually bought the company from them, which was a great turn of events. That was in 2006 or seven. Okay. Um, did that for a couple of years, sold that business to someone else because I realized I wanted to manufacture but this time, instead of working for someone else, I was going to work for me. So we started Razor, which signed baseball players to exclusive deals. We made poker trading cards, our yeah. favorite sport together. Yeah. We did poker trading cards, cut signatures, baseball draft. In 2008, I had 28 of the 30 first-round picks exclusive. Tops only had two. I had 28. Wow. Um, and they didn't have exclusives on there, too. I got rights to there, too, also. But I had 28 exclusives. So – I took a big splash. Whenever I do something, as you know, in the hockey category now, I do the same thing in baseball. If I'm in, I'm in, and I'm going to make a splash. So we, you know, we took, we started Razor, did that for a couple of years, very successful. 
But then in 2010, um, the biggest thing that's ever happened to me happened. I had a chance to acquire the brand Leaf, you know, and that's, for me, that was a game changer. How, how did, Brian, how did that even come about? How does someone have the opportunity to acquire a brand like Leaf? It's so funny because Leaf had been a, they had been a candy company and they'd done their thing. But for the 10 years before that, Donruss had actually been leasing the name. Okay. They were paying like a rental to, to use the name every year, like a licensing deal. Well, once Panini took over, they decided they didn't really want to re-up that deal because they thought it was a waste of money. So Mr. Opportunity here saw that, heard that the name was not being used anymore, and I made him an offer and said, I want that name. I don't want to lease it. I want to own it. And, and did you, let me ask you this. Is part of the reason you wanted it because of the, 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 the I mean, at that point, the 60-year brand equity in that name? I mean, Leaf was big in the 40s. Sure. Like, I was Razor. Okay, yeah. where do you see brand equity? Razor or Leaf? Mm, it's very yeah. simple. So, so for me, I got a chance to buy hobby history yeah buy i got to buy heritage i got to buy meaning to the brand and leaf in 1990 was a cutting edge innovative change the game kind of brand it was that frank thomas rookie changed the game huge and that's what i wanted to be was a game changing move the needle kind of guy and that opportunity set that stage so then when people saw what we were doing it was so funny they looked at the products that I was making before as Razor, which had no brand equity. And when they added that name, the products meant something different. And that springboarded us up into a level where now we're competing with Press Pass and Sage and all these guys in the draft categories. We're competing with those like the next tier down, second tier companies we're competing with. And we bought our way into that group and it was great. I mean, it was because we were doing good things. People just didn't notice because they didn't recognize the brand. It didn't mean anything to them. So the brand helped us a ton. And since then, we've been manufacturing as Leaf. And we've continually, every year, improved the quality. Yes, we make, we make more sales now than ever. We make profit. Well, all these things, that's all great. My barometer for success is, are the products substantially better in 2020 than they were in 2010? And I can safely say that every year they've improved. And starting in like 2005 or six or 2015-16 range, draft products had never been done the way we were doing them, which is part of why people like Press Pass and Sage fell below us and we moved up to the top echelon or closer to that top echelon because we, we suddenly made player-licensed products comparable to professional products in terms right. of quality. So that's the evolution of where we are today, and I'm proud that I think we're better equipped to help collectors, dealers, distributors, whatever, because I've been all those things. No other CEO of a card company has been all those things. So I think I have a unique pedigree yeah. that gives me experience, and I can sympathize with the difficulties and the successes of every part of the industry, and that's made all the difference. Right. I mean, you, you, start, you, 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 you started as a collector in the 80s, just like I did, except uh, while, I was, while I was collecting and opening up packs of ProSet, you were actually part of the manufacturer. You then went into distribution. You then went into manufacture. And then, I've had multiple stores. So, I mean, I've, we've done everything. Yeah. I know the plot of being a store owner. I know so, really appreciate it. I know I know everything, all this stuff. You know, you know I guess you, you basically have a perspective of all different levels and facets of people of players in the hobby, players, collectors, everybody. Tell me this. Um, 
you then in what what year was it and how did it work where you acquired the in the game company from Dr. Brian Price? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Price had done what I consider to be a fantastic job for collectors. He'd made very collector driven products for a long time, even when he was licensed by the NHLPA, I guess, for be a player. Yeah. All the way through the era where he wasn't licensed. And he, you know, he was very smart about finding ways to take opportunities to either be player licensed or to just describe the memorabilia on the cards with names and things. He did a very good job of doing that. Very good for collectors, pure collectors. And I think Brian finally got exhausted of the politics in the situation with the league licensing, with, you know, the license companies not behaving very nicely or trying to squeeze him or, you know, whatever it was, I think Brian Price was just exhausted of fighting. And I don't blame him. Because the game is stacked against anyone who wants to do it the way we do it. And we're, we're committing to a fight when we decide that we're going to make products that we're legally allowed to make that collectors are going to love. And I think Brian was exhausted of that fight. I was friends with him for many years. And I think Brian knows that if there's anyone who's got the fight in him, I think he thought that might be us. Yeah. We had some fun talks about it. And it just came to a head where he's like, I was like, Brian, do you really want to keep doing this? He's like, eh, yeah, I do. But I also I'm tired of fighting. You know, do you think you can make collectors happy? Do you think you can continue doing what I've been doing? And I was like, you know, I think I can do that. Yeah. And I looked at his products and I said, you know, I think I can take these products. And he did a great job. But I think I can kick them up a notch and make them look, feel, and go head to head with the best. Yeah. Whatever the best was, whether it was Panini, Upper Deck, Tom, whoever that would be, we're ready to go. Let's make compelling product to give collectors a choice. Because in this new world of exclusives that exist today, collectors really did not have a choice. Like today, they still have only us and Upper Deck as choices. Right. There was Panini had had a a co-licensor for a while there. But so so when you actually acquired the in the game company and and assets from from Dr. Price, was that was was that a, a actually making the deal did it take a long time how quickly did you know was it a hard was it a tough negotiation yeah it took it was a big deal i mean i had done a, the biggest deal i ever did was when i acquired edge man because that was a huge deal back before but um but this was a big deal and it was not a, it was not a small money deal it was complicated we took some time to do it there was a lot of planning that was involved because our staff had never done anything like hockey and so the transition to us being able to do these things he had a staff in Canada who I held in very high regard. Again, we were not ready to be a multinational company, so that meant we had to do the legwork. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a complicated thing, and then the logistics of how we were going to make this transition. There was a product in production in the middle we had to work together on before we handed off the baton completely. We had to announce it at the, at the expo. We had a party at the racetrack. You know, but you know, it, it was a lot of moving pieces. But it was a situation where I was committed to saying, not that I could definitely do better than Brian, but I wanted to do different because I believed we could more modernize some of these things and change them in ways that he might not have because he's a purist. And I love that. A lot of the cocky collectors are purists. And I'm not really that simple a purist. I have I have ideas about ways to make it where it can make the purist happy and also make the new age hockey collector happy. And yeah. so – Oh, new age collector happy, not even hockey, because we're trying to bring non-hockey people into the category. 
And so we just did some things different. And I'm not saying one's better or worse, but I think we've been successful in converting a lot of people who might or might not have tried player licensed or you know unlicensed, whatever you want to call it, member uh, memorabilia driven products. Right. I think I think one of the things with uh, <clears throat> with Brian Price and you're, I mean, you're both collectors. He he's been a collector. He's a lifelong collector. And Amazing. Like, Amazing collection, and like yourself, he's also uh, you know it, it's been in the in the industry uh, from a business perspective. So I, I can see why he would look to do business with you because you kind of had that same uh, beginning, if you will. You know, you came up through the hobby just organically, like like I did, like like our viewers did, like all collectors really did. But you then turned in turned towards being in business, which uh, he did as well. So I can see there being a, a synergy there between the two of you and doing the deal. Do you guys still have a relationship? Are you still in touch? We talk all the time, but it's even more than you just said. It's a synergy in how we started, but both of us don't like being punching bags. And when you tell us that we can't do something or that we're not allowed to compete because you're the big whatever, that's like it's throwdown time. Right. And, and I will not back down if someone tells us we're not allowed to play in the sandbox. I don't mind staying in my side of the sandbox and not playing with your sand. But don't tell me I can't get in the sandbox because I'm not going to sit in the back of the bus. I can tell you that right now. And Brian's got that same fighting spirit. And that's part of the reason I love him. He's one of my best friends. I love Brian Price for that reason. He's a fighter. He doesn't give up. And he's going to play fair. But if you don't play fair with him, he will fight hard. And yeah, yeah. He'll and you know I, I had on on the the ticker there at the bottom a few minutes ago. He'll be my guest here on May twenty third, so he'll have a chance to respond. Hopefully, Brian, you're watching right now, and you can remember some of these things, and we'll chat about them on the twenty third. I'll be tuning in for sure. I got questions for Brian Price. I want to put him well, on. You, you better you better turn it. You better tune in, BG. You better tune in, and uh, you can ask him some questions. Absolutely, but, baby. So listen, that that's really interesting. Uh, I, I'm glad we got it kind of out of the way. I wanted I wanted the listeners to get an idea for where you came from to bring you to where you are today, hobby wise. Um, and because we do have a lot of Canadian viewers and a lot of hockey viewers, kind of what brought you to purchase in the game. Now, the biggest question I have to get into your head on in terms of your, your activity with leaf trading cards, because I, I do know that you have other endeavors in the sports card world, but I want to focus on leaf for a few more minutes here. And I want you to speak to the exclusives that you have signed in the past. In 1516, you had an exclusive autograph deal with Jack Eichel. And then in 1617, you managed to get an exclusive autograph deal with Nico Hischier and Nolan Patrick, the first and the second round pick overall. 1516, Eichel was the second overall to Connor McDavid, McDavid being an exclusive signer for Upper Deck. You had Eichel. The next year, you had one and two. What I think the viewers want to know... <clears throat> What motivated you to, to, to sign those ex exclusive deals? How tough were they for you to actually get? And to the extent you can tell us, are those expensive deals to get and compared to veteran players? Well, here's what I can tell you. Um, first off, I, I hate exclusives. I think they're terrible. I've said it. I think, it's a, I think it's a horrible thing for the industry because I believe collectors need a choice. So in a perfect world, everybody can have everybody – the leagues would give out licenses like licorice and we could all make products and collectors because you buy whatever is the best product, whatever is the best value. Unfortunately, the game doesn't work like that. There's more pieces moving around. There's politics, whatever. So we had no intention ever of signing a player exclusive. Now, with that being said, 
I knew going into 15-16, you know, we had had a deal with Connor McDavid in the CHL where we could use his, his name and his autograph and all that stuff. And we were proud to make rookie cards before Upper Deck of McDavid. And um, our thought was, let's call McDavid's guys and see if we can do a deal. Not an exclusive deal, just a deal so that we could keep making McDavid rookies in 15-16. We called up the agency and they said, we're in an exclusive negotiating period with Upper Deck. I said, what do you mean exclusive negotiating period? They said, well, until we break down our discussions with Everdeck, we can't talk to you. I said, what do you mean you can't talk to me? Let me tell you a price, and then you can tell me I'm too high or too low. And I'm telling you, it would have been too high. I would have paid more than Everdeck, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. So Everdeck signs him exclusive. So make no mistake, while people think I'm this huge disruptor that ruined the hockey business because I signed Ico exclusive, Everdeck signed Connor McDavid exclusively first. So then I called Everdeck. And I said, why are you signing rookies exclusive? When Panini had a license, you weren't allowed to sign players or tops or whatever. You guys had a deal where you couldn't sign players exclusive. It was an agreement through the NHL. You were not allowed exclusives. So now you're signing exclusives now that it's just me and you in the room. And they said, we're allowed to. We're the licensee. He's our spokesman. We can do whatever we want. And any, any boo-boo. So I said, you understand that now I have to go try to sign ICO exclusive. <laughs> And they started laughing at me. Just like I did. <laughs> they literally laughed in my face. Yeah. And they said, good luck. No player is ever going to sign with you exclusive. And you're not upper deck, so you shouldn't even be allowed to sign exclusive. I mean, what do you mean I shouldn't be allowed? Is this America? Last time I checked, it was America, not North Korea. So we're allowed to sign exclusives here. So I said, you know, I don't want to do this. And I begged 50 times. I sent 20 emails. I sent Masher an email. Jason Masher. I sent an email. I said, please don't make me sign this guy exclusive. I'm going to sign him. And they ignored me. So then I saw him and I said, listen, I have a blank check. I'm signing this guy. So I did. I, I went to Jack Eichel and I broke the bank. It was the most lucrative rookie deal in the history of hockey. More money than McDavid, Crosby, Ovechkin, any of them. Biggest deal ever for a rookie. I believe the signature rate was 25 to 40% more than what McDavid got. So Ico got paid way more than McDavid for signing cards that year. Way more. So even after I signed him, I then went to Upper Deck again and said, listen, even though you told me that I'm not good enough and there's no way he'll sign with me, the player had a choice and said, you know what? I want to pick Leaf over Upper Deck. But even then I went and said, you know what? Why don't we – Blow this exclusive crap up, and I will sell you Ico autographs, and you sell me some McDavid autographs before either of them ever skated. And they said, nope, never, whatever, whatever. You should not be allowed to have Ico anyway. Barked at me, whatever. Never talk to me again. That's fine. So I had Ico exclusive. In sixteen seventeen, we did not sign Austin Matthews. We sat on the sideline because our opinion was, you know what, let's don't do exclusives on Matthews. As long as Upper Deck doesn't sign them exclusive, we won't do any exclusives. And guess what? Upper Deck signs Matthews exclusive. So then I said to myself, I said, okay, I can't play this game anymore where I try to be the nice guy and not sign someone and you go sign the number one pick. So in 2017-18, first I signed Nolan Patrick exclusive. He went number two. At the time, we thought he was going to go number one. Yeah. We signed him exclusive when he was in CHL still. So we believed in him before anyone else believed in him. We said, we want to commit large amounts of money to you before you even 
get drafted. So we locked him up to an exclusive deal. Then Nico Hishier shoots up the board. Or Hishier. Everyone calls him different, you know. But I call him Hishier, but. Hishier. So Hishier moves up the board, and I say, oh, crap, this guy can go number one. So I call his agent and say, guess what? You guys won the lottery. <laughs> Jack Eichel picked us over Upper Deck. Nolan Patrick picked us. And Joe Valeno, who ended up going 30th, as we signed him as a 15-year-old kid. He, choose to, he chose us over Upper Deck. Guess what? Valeno has a chance to do something special. He has a chance to say, I don't have to take a bad deal from the licensor just because they have an NHL license. I'm going to take the better deal because it's what I deserve. Who? You said Valeno. Did you mean? Uh... We had already signed Valeno, Patrick, and Heeshear. So, I mean, and, uh, and I go. So Heeshear, we said to him, you have a chance to do something unique. You can say no. You don't have to take a substandard deal just because someone has a license. And Heeshear picked us. And, again, it was per signature the most lucrative deal in the history of rookies in hockey. Bigger than Ico. Bigger than the deal you did with Eichel. Bigger per signature than the Eichel deal. Yeah. And honestly, if Austin Matthews had come to me exclusive, I would have paid double what Upper Deck paid. So uh, Austin Matthews lost about half the money also, which is, you know, too bad for them. But, um, but yeah, so that was the vision. I never wanted this to happen. But I figured if I signed number one and number two picks in the draft, that would send a message that would be heard loud and clear that I'm not some little tomato can to be kicked around. Let us compete. And when the top two picks in the draft pick us over the establishment, I think at that point it woke a lot of people up, mm-hmm. including Upper Deck, who you know obviously we're in litigation with them. We don't want to get too deep in the in the in the weeds on that. Yeah. But honestly, the issues behind that came because I signed the rookies and they were pissed, and so they took actions that in the United States are illegal, and we're going through all the all the the, the stuff that goes with that. Sure. But. The message was we're allowed to sign prospects. We're allowed to compete. And we did exactly that. It wasn't fight. It was we wanted to sign players to show that we were seriously committed to the category. And we did exactly that. And I wouldn't change it today except if Upper Deck in the very beginning had said, you know what? Let's do the right thing and give collectors a choice. Sure. So let me ask you this now. Now that we're looking back three, four years ago since these deals, and I guess those exclusives those exclusives have expired, do you feel did did you get a good return on your investment? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, this was business. This was not spite to Upper Deck. It really wasn't. It wasn't ego puffing out my chest either. Even though it might have sounded like that just now, it was really about putting ourselves in a position where people knew that we were not a fly by night in this category. We were not a hit and run. We were in this category committed to competing long-term. And this was what we did to show that. So even if I had lost money, which I did not, it was worth it from that standpoint because we did show we're for real. But I will tell you that every exclusive deal, all four of the deals we did ended up being profitable deals for Leaf. And we couldn't be happier. You know, they were all great deals. You know, it's just unfortunately the hockey landscape right now. You know, we're trying again to do the right thing and not get involved in those shenanigans. Right. Okay, man. Well, listen, that's awesome. So we've got a bunch of comments and questions coming in. I want to take a minute, just run through some of them. Let's see what some people are saying. Maybe we get some, I haven't seen them all yet. I'm going to kind of go as I go through them as as they are. I'm I'm one of those guys. I'm not a corporate big wig. I'm not going to tell you all we are. I'm not going to make up some, you know, shenanigans, political shenanigans. 
I'm just going to tell you how it is, and you may not like it, but it's the truth. Well, that's I know. I know you as a guy who tells it like it is. I always appreciate yeah. that about you. And if there's anything that I ask you that you can't answer because of any legal ongoings, whatever, just no worries at all. No worries at all. Because I love good questions. All right, all right. So we got Eli. Awesome job. Thank you, Eli. Uh, BG Barry Grice here to watch BG and me too. Let's do it. Thanks for joining Barry. Barry's my guest on Wednesday. For sure. We have uh, Super Striker wants to just thank you for coming on. Yes, thank you very much for coming on the show, uh, Brian. Uh, boy, we got lots here. Let's see what else do we have. Um, Greg Jeffries, 88 Donruss was so hot. I think that came back when you talked about your uh, your Donruss uh, case that you bought back in the day. Gary Thurman, there were tons of great guys. Somebody wants to bring back ProSets. Sean needs the ProSet hologram. Do you remember the ProSet hologram, the Stanley Cup hologram back then? I mean, again, there were so many shenanigans at that place. I mean, the stories I could tell you of what I've seen in my days, even in one simple year, the things I saw were disgusting. Yeah. But I will tell you that uh, I love the ProSet brand. Um, you know, I don't know that there's a place for it currently in the market, but it was a great, great brand for its time, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. And that, that Stanley Cup hologram to this day is one of my favorite cards. I have a, I, have, I buy them whenever I can. It's a great card. Uh, you know Irv, Irving Manera, mustache oh, yeah. man? Love the mustache. He's got the mustache, best. man. He says, hello, Irv, if you're still watching, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Uh, what else do we got here? There's your boy, Greg Cohn. He thinks North Korea now allows exclusive. So we are a little bit further back uh, from, from yeah, where we were discussing. Maybe, maybe we'll open our North Korea office soon. Greg can go man it. Yeah. Barry says we're talking about business. Yeah, business is business. Thank you, Super Striker, and uh, we both uh, we both enjoy telling stories, and BG uh, most certainly does. What does Greg say? We also had three CHL licenses, and those players fit our product line. Awesome. Yeah, that's one thing we didn't mention is that we had the CHL license um, for the first, I guess it was two or three years of our uh, hockey endeavors, and Upper Deck took over the license, and the first year they didn't even make anything, and now they make one product a year, and it's kind of you know it's an interesting product. I don't think they do a terrible job with it. But obviously, I think they took it. They they tried to take it away from us. We were walking away from it anyway because it just. I think we're better with veteran memorabilia. I think that's where we're best placed in the market. Yeah. So you, of, and you guys do a lot of real vintage memorabilia. Still, did a lot of did a lot of the vintage memorabilia, or let me rephrase: Did all of your vintage memorabilia come from Brian Price when you acquired in the game in terms of hockey? Yeah, that was where it was seated. It was seated with that, and then we added tons of incredible pieces. But a lot of it came from Brian. So, you know, it was great stuff that had been collected. There was no way to ever get that inventory. Yeah. So like, if we had not done a deal with Brian Price, there was no coming into the market and buying these things. They don't exist. The things we cut up belong in the Hockey Hall of Fame probably. And some of it probably came from there because there have been things that have left the Hall of Fame over the years and been sold. And some of that's in our inventory. But, um, you know, our inventory is staggering. And I think that's where we've seen our, our best place in the market being with that vintage mem. And the great autograph deals we do. Yeah. With rookies in CHL, we saw that as an experiment to try to be kind of like the Bowman for hockey. And hockey collectors and investors or whatever they are generally don't seem to speculate at the CHL stage yet. And so that's why it didn't really fit our brand because we wanted to make cards that had much more collector excitement. And in the CHL brand, it felt like people bought them more regionally. If you were in Erie, you bought the Erie, the guys from the Erie team. You bought, you know, it, it, it felt like a lot of regional collecting. Yeah. 
minus McDavid when we had McDavid in 14, 15, and 15, 16. You know, so for us, we were we were walking away from the CHL license because we felt like it was not great for us. And then Upper Deck took it over because I guess they thought they were beating their chest. And I think they've done an okay job with it. But for us, that wasn't a great category. But Greg's right. That was something we had. We were proud to be a partner with the CHL. And, again, the CHL partnered with us for a reason, and it was because we were serious about being in the business. Yeah, cool. Aaron says, great show so far. Aaron, thank you for joining. Here's a question from Bill. Uh, what is in the Texas water that makes it such a hobby hotbed? Home to Leaf, Panini, Beckett, Proset, Pinnacle. What do you have to say to that? You know, honestly, there's only a few factories in the country that can package cards. This is an interesting thing. A lot of people think you can print cards all over. Okay. That's easy. Printing cards is no problem. The problem is the machines that cut, collate, package are very old machines generally. And so, honestly, there's only a few places, Dallas being one of them. North Carolina is what Upper Deck uses. They use PBM in North Carolina. Used to be a factory in South Dakota that could do it also. But all the packaging happens in Dallas, pretty much. Tops, Upper Deck, does some stuff in Dallas. Tops and Panini package most of their stuff here. We do. Sage packages their stuff in Dallas. It's just the place to package. You know, Yu-Gi-Oh cards and Pokemon cards are packaged in Dallas. So is that why is that why Panini, who's an Italian company, headquartered there because their packager was close? Donruss. And Donruss was located there. Oh, right. And someday, when next time we do a show, I don't want to go into it today because we have little time, but I didn't want I, I will share with you my story of being this close to mine, Donruss. Oh wow. So you just committed to a second a second appearance on my show. I'm very happy to hear yeah, that. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it goes well because I'm locked in now. <laughs> well, we'll we'll get to it. I'm booked through the end of the month. I actually just just today. I booked my guest for June, Saturday, June the 6th, I think it is. Uh, perhaps my biggest celebrity guest as of yet in far, in terms of someone who's uh, a regular on TV and all that. So I'll announce that shortly, but um, we'll won't say any more, any more to that at the yeah, moment. Your second biggest celebrity, because my feelings are my ego is very bruised right now. <laughs> you know, but no, I think, that's, I think that's a piece of it. It's the companies have been here because this is where the press is and then where the, where the stuff is. Right. And when they took over Donruss, they took that staff. So it just made sense for them to be here. But it, it's just great being in the town where the factories are. ProSet actually owned part of a press back then, the place where the stuff was printed and packaged. They actually it used to be called ProSet Press. So they actually own part of it. Okay. You know, Dr. Beckett was Beckett. He just lived here a lifetime. This is always where he's been. So, but again, it is funny that Texas is the hotbed for that. But I will say that I think the companies doing the most creative stuff in the business just happened to be in Texas between us and Panini. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Eli says no more Cyclone Taylor. Thanks, Brian. Hope all is well. Stay Brian safe. Huge. I'll give him a pump up. If you have Cyclone Taylor cards, you need to call Eli because he's a big buyer. And so our goal is to make only enough cards to keep his bank account slightly damaged at all times. Yeah. But I'll be honest, we're getting low on material. And that's one thing, Greg, you know, if you have him on the show at some point, he'll tell you, we have very little material on Cyclone left. So, if you are a Cyclone collector or you've always wanted to own one, if you wait another year, you may not ever own one because one day we're going to say done forever because there is not anything to buy. There is no. not one piece of real memorabilia that we feel comfortable buying. Fair. All right. Uh, Super Striker wants, he said he's lo he'd love to hear some crazy stories from ProSet. Is there anything that, that kind of sticks into your mind? Uh, the one thing I saw that was probably looking back now, I think of how much money was sitting there was in our office, we had 1990 ProSet made basketball promos. I don't know if you knew this. I did not know that. And they made a Michael Jordan promo in 1990. They made uh, Jordan, Ewing, Malone, 
I think one of the guys. There's are, there, are they floating out around out there? Very few were out there. Some had made their way out there. But I remember two pallets of Jordans. Now, to give you an idea how many cards fit on a pallet, it's probably quarter of a million. Okay. So there were a quarter of a million to a half million of those. I think they're worth about a thousand bucks now. So you do the math. But just things like that that we just had laying around that it was just and again, I walked into a warehouse once and saw fifty thousand cases of pro set football. And that was nothing. That was just one little warehouse. Yeah. In the warehouse, they also had like five thousand cases of Skybox basketball that they traded with Skybox. They uh-huh. traded some pro set for Skybox with them, just a just a swap to have some fun. So we had like 10,000, 5,000 cases of Skybox basketball sitting there. What just was the stuff? I'm just thinking back to ProSet football, which came out just before ProSet hockey did back in 1990, I believe it was. I, I remember popping packs of cracking packs of both those products. Wasn't it ProSet football that had like the big rookie that year wasn't even, and someone will forget, will we'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the big rookie card out of the ProSet football wasn't even an NFL player. Wasn't it Rocket Ishmael from the CFL? That was in the, I think he was in 1991 pro set. The second year. Nine was Barry and Aikman, Barry Sanders, Troy Aikman. 90 was a group that didn't hold up too well over time. Andre Ware and guys like that. Right. Rocket was in 91. 90 also had Ty Detmer, I think. But I mean, so, but again, it was just an era of collectors could not buy enough of anything. I remember people buying cases of 91 platinum football from me at sixteen, eighteen hundred dollars saying that's going to put their kid through college. Right. Yeah. So currently worth the stout sum of $80. Yeah. So you only lost $1,520 on your $1,600 investment. But I mean, again, it's just the hobby has changed so much. Of course. And and, and you're so good now is we're in an era of underproduction relative to historical numbers. Right. And we're going to get into that in a, a little bit later uh, in terms of where the hobby's at right now. We'll just continue with some more comments here. Friend of the show, Richards. Hello, Brian. Thanks for partaking. Interesting discussion so far. Thanks, Richard, for tuning in. Greg says to Eli, sorry, buddy, more Cyclone coming. Here's a question for Brian for, for from footballcardshop.com. Brian, for Leaf Draft Football, how difficult was it getting the player selection you got this year, which included almost every top draft pick? You know, it, it's tough because, I mean, you got to know these the, the marketplace in football, these guys are highly desirable. And so we pay out. I mean, that's just the bottom line. We pay whatever it takes because as a collector, when you open a product, you know, if when we miss a top guy, it's something we can't control. We've never walked away from a player over a price that was a top five or six pick except Miles Garrett in all these years. He's the only guy we walked from because he was too high as a top pick. But, you know, we pay out. And, and fortunately, in football, you have a competitive landscape where both Leaf and Panini have found a way to coexist mm-hmm. and not get into dogfights and lawsuits over everything. And we've found a way to coexist in the market because we both realize that we bring something unique to collectors and that collectors deserve a choice and they have a choice. And so we've been very fortunate that it hasn't been like this exclusive dogfight to try to sign players exclusive. It really is. Let's let collectors have a choice. We go pay what we need to pay to get guys, and we've been committed to, whether it's Joe Burrow, Tua Tagovailoa, you know, Justin Herbert, we pay what it takes because collectors deserve that. And if we skimp for 5 or $10, the consequence, the consequence to collectors is a substantial amount of value in the products. Sure, sure. Here's another one from a good buddy of mine, Darcy. He loves the vintage memorabilia cards that Leaf is known for. 
He's curious about Vezina and Taylor. Is there a lot of uh, memorabilia left? You already mentioned, you already spoke to Taylor. What about Vezina? But Vezina, I, I think we have stuff still. And and again, we, what we're doing, you'll notice some of that stuff we're making more rare now. We were a little more liberal with it early on. But I think just like everybody else in any business, we've come to appreciate the extraordinary value in these kind of memorabilia names. And we know they're irreplaceable because we're out there every day looking for Trust me, someone calls me with a real cyclone item, I'm going to make their day. Yeah. But there's no item to buy. So right. you realize you savor the flavor and you hold these things and make them last as long as possible so the collectors can enjoy them for a long time. Because the day we announce there's no more cyclones, you will not buy a cyclone card, card under $1,000. Those yeah. days will be over the day we put that out there. Fair. Sean wants to know what's your back your next big hockey product and any new uh, exclusive signings like Byfield or Lafreniere. No, we don't. I don't like exclusives. Number one, number two. I believe Upper Deck already has Lafreniere exclusive, and they may have Byfield already. Our focus really isn't trying to sign rookies exclusive. <clears throat> our goal of doing that in the beginning was to add a new element to our veteran-driven products. But what we've realized is that the veteran-driven products have a great amount of demand in the marketplace. And it's like, I'm trying to think, a, a great hockey player, you have him do what he does well. You don't keep Ovechkin back to play defense or put him in the goal. You let the guy score because that's yeah. what he does. You know, So we score with vintage memorabilia and with great autograph deals to supplement that. So we're going to focus on what we do well instead of trying to do things just to – again, it's not a spite or a fight thing. We feel like we can compete right now with what we have, except for the problems in distribution that we are in the litigation over. So what's the next big hockey product coming out? We just came out with this uh, yesterday, Ultimate Hockey, which is a killer. It would yeah. have been at the Expo last week had, it, you know, had the show happen. It's a killer. I mean, I got to say for Greg, who's listening, I mean, I shouldn't say this because his ego will end up as big as mine at some point. <laughs> he's killed it. I, I actually was about to send him a text right before we went on to say, Greg, I appreciate you. Yeah. And I'll tell him here in front of everyone. I appreciate Greg. He is pretty much genius when it comes to this. And well, I, you know what? I'm lucky to have someone like Greg on my staff and we'll let the cookie cutters at the other places that just regurgitate stuff. We'll let them do that. I love having a guy like Greg who's a creative. I love it. So you know what? at some point we're going to focus on creative stuff and not worrying about, you know, trying to, just cookie cutter things where it's the same thing over and over. Sure. You know, I just want to mention Greg uh, is always very communicative and, you know, on the hobby insider message boards, for example, he's very active there and he's uh, he takes, he takes positive and negative um, criticisms and suggestions very well, very professionally. So um, kudos to him for that and for his involvement, willingness to, to reply and respond to communicate with the collectors who are buying the products. I think that's great. Do you, sure. do you like that he kind of fills that role too and is out there talking to people? Yeah, I mean, because here's the thing. I'm passionate and I defend my products till the end. And, you know, sometimes that can be, it can come across as aggressive or abrasive. It's like if someone told you your kid's ugly, you know, no one likes to hear that. Even if your kid is ugly, no one <laughs> wants to hear that. And our kid's not ugly. Yeah. You know, there's some people that have trouble getting over the player licensed or not league licensed hurdle. And so for some people that's hard. And I'm, I can be defensive of our brand if people are not fair in their criticism. Greg is pretty good at taking even unfair criticism and, and, and handling that well. It's nice to have someone like that, but I'm completely available. And yeah. if you have 
the criticism here. Let's bring it. We can put it on the screen. I'm not scared, and I'll just try to be as nice as possible in addressing it. But at the end of the day, as a team between me and Greg, we both are passionate about what we do, and we know that half the half of what we learned about the hockey business has been from going to the expo and listening to customers. It's from getting emails and reading them and saying, you know what? The hockey collector is not the same as the football collector. And you cannot cookie cutter it and act like they're the same. They're not the same. And so we've learned a lot of that by that kind of input. Sounds good. Sounds good. There's a question that's a little too long for me to put on the screen, but the debate, the, 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 it's from Peter Chow. And he just wants to know uh, that, you know, there was originally one set of George Vezina pads that were, that were uh, authenticated, cut and, and cut up and put into cards by Dr. Brian Price. Um, did you get the remainder of those pads? And are there any of those left? What I can say at this point is we are still using the first pad. That's oh, all really? this. We still have material left. So Vezina will be around for a while to the to my understanding, but I we'll see. I mean anything can change, you know. But yeah. we are still we are still using original pad. But that's, that's why amazing. you see it's sparser, because again, we're trying to stretch out the magic that is Vezina and make it last a little bit longer. Fair. All right, here we go. Um, have you ever thought about expanding your best in series to include best in gaming, which would be all about Magic the Gathering and other games, asks Jerry Mack. I like that. And I've thought about that. We've talked about that. Um, the, one of the biggest knocks, honestly, is there are some problems in that category. And it goes with the whole grading debate, which, you know, whether we get into that tonight or another time, you know, there's there are some problems with Magic. There have been bad Magic cards that have made it into holders. There's a lot of magic cards that are counterfeit being sold on eBay. They're not counterfeit, but they may be rebacked and glued to old backs. And there's a lot of stuff in there. And I'm, I know a lot about magic because we were very big distributors of that at one point. But I'm not an expert to the level that I can look at a Pearl Mox, Mox Pearl, and tell you if it's been tampered with or anything like that. I can look at a sports card and tell you, but I can't do that with a Mox. And I like to stick to my expertise. We could do that at some point, though. So do not write that off. We've talked about it 4,500 times. Yeah, you know what? My, my biggest takeaway from your reply there is that you even you do know about magic, and I think as someone you know in your position in the hobby, that's important. I mean, magic—it's funny. I, I'm not a Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, Pokemon guy at all. I never played these games, but as a card collector, owning the best of those you know um, culturally iconic and uh, brands still interests me. I don't know what a Charizard really is, but do I want one? Yeah, and I don't know how I feel about that, but I kind of do. I like that. I think it's cool. And I'll tell you what, though. People don't realize that Upper Deck did not invent EPAC. They invented the words EPAC. Magic had Magic Online where you could open a pack of Magic Online. That okay. was first. They created that experience. And before EPAC, we actually had a redemption site where your redemption card was opened as a pack online and the card came out. So, I mean, it's not like this is a brand new thing. Yes, the way they're marketing is different where you can buy a pack anytime they're not on a sports card that's never been done before. But Magic invented that. And I think that's one of the cool things is, you know, again, we've learned from all these different categories we've dealt in and been part of in this hobby. We've seen the yeses and the noes and the way things have been done well, which would be like the model for how Tops and those companies have grown or Magic. And we've seen the bad, which was ProSet, uh, Wildcard. We've seen all kinds of companies come and go because the management was terrible. They did bad things or the companies did a great job of doing what they set out to do. And so we learned from all those, even if we're not part of them, we watch these stories and treat them as like cautionary tells. The yeah. tells don't step there because someone stepped there before and they sank. 
And we yeah. try to learn from that. Awesome. Uh, Aaron Goldstein says, is it Ken Reed? Uh, referring to my, my guest that I just booked for June the 6th. No, it's not Ken Reed. Ken Reed is a, a sports announcer here in Canada. And uh, he's also an author of a couple of, of hobby related books. I think they're called hockey card stories, part one and part two. I have, I have both copies myself. They're very interesting. It's not Ken Reed, Aaron. It's someone who, I mean, Ken Reed's on TV every day. It's someone who's not on TV every day, but don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there soon enough. How about this idea? Cut up flags and put them in cards. That's a kind of random out of left field. Any thoughts on that? Uh, are we talking about like country flags? I get you can't do that, can you? You can't cut up a flag. We had a, back when we had the army, we had the army license for army football, high school football, and there are flags on the jerseys. And the first couple of years, our the people who made our cards would not cut the flags on the jerseys, but now they do. But we're not going to go take like a U.S. flag. I have a flag that flew over the Capitol on the bicentennial. I thought that would make a cool memorabilia card, but I'm not cutting up the U.S. flag right now. I think, if anything, no. be waving it, and you guys should be waving the maple leaf up there. Yeah, know? I wouldn't be cutting up flags right now either. Um, I just want to address a question. I'm not. We're not going to talk about this, but uh, Jeremy Pringle wants to know if you could take us through the process to produce a card from concept to customer. Let's save that question for Greg when he comes on the show because I think sure. that's just more appropriate for Greg. So, Jeremy, tune yeah. into a later episode. Greg, we'll have to pick a date to get you on. Here's a comment from Billy. Billy Arnold Morris says, I will throw this out there now. Upper Deck Who Leaf is my favorite product, even though you need to scale back on Shanahan's. Billy's a, a long-term uh, Shanahan collector who I'm sure has some Upper Deck cards in her collection too. Well, first off, Billy, I love you. I just wanted to say that. If you're a mother, happy Mother's Day early. No, but I, I'm a mother. That's great. Happy Mother's Day early. All the mothers deserve kudos because they deal with us fathers. But um, never mind how good they are with our kids. The fact they put up with us fathers is a miracle. But no, I appreciate you saying that. You know what? We just want to make cards that are compelling for people. And some people we just not gonna we're not gonna be compelling to certain people. But the people we are have proven to be fiercely loyal and passionate about what we do, which fires us up and makes us more passionate about what we do. Right on. Right on. Here, I'm going to put this one on very quickly. Uh, Jason says, sorry, I'm, I'm late to the show. Settlers of Catan victory delayed me. I only put that on there because I've been playing Settlers of Catan since probably 1997. Uh, so the they've done such a good job keeping that game relevant for as long as they have. I know a little bit about that game too. They've done a great job making that game. It's one of the best board games of all time. I, well, it actually won board game of the year in like Germany in 1990-something. Really because there's really not a better board game in the modern group of board games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I just want to mention to Andy, your name is still not showing up, brother. Uh, Brett, welcome to the show. Glad you could make it. Uh, we have some questions from Barry Grice. <clears throat> Two-part, Brian. Why are some players depicted with jersey image of a number versus their headshots? Is that a licensing thing? Yeah, there are certain players we have deals with, and so we put their image on the card. And then there's other players where we don't have a deal with them, but we have memorabilia we own. So we put the jersey with the number there to help describe the swatch. That's the purpose. So we use that for descriptive purposes. But yeah, that, that is the reason we do that. And honestly, in the beginning, I don't know that I was a huge fan of the appearance of it, but I actually kind of like it. I don't think it, I think it's really the key is descriptive. It's got to be descriptive of whose swatch that is. And we've found out over time that sometimes people can't identify the swatches without, you know, like Brian Price used to only put the last name. You know, I think we need a little bit more descriptive element than that. So we put what we think is the bare minimum descriptive element to really describe the swatches that we're putting in the cards. Sure. And you know, he, he did mention it's a two-part question. And the second part, 
I, I really want to talk about this. He says, why not do all the same for conformity and aesthetics? And I think what he means or what I would mean is that if you have a card that's going to be, you know, a, a, a combination of headshots and say non-headshots, the jersey name, why wouldn't you just do all headshots on a card and then put and then put all the players who you don't have deals with together as all jerseys just to get more more a more more symmetry if you will to the card itself there's an argument for that i think what i don't want to do is stifle the creativity of the theming there's right. one thing greg works really hard on his themes let me let's speak about hold on brian let's speak about themes for one second because i often it's and it's one of the fun things about your cards is that you can look at a card and try and figure out what the theme is what and why are these guys tell, together tells you a lot though he'll tell you you know um 80s award winners or 80s Calder winners or 80 heart winners, 80s heart winners, whatever it is. He gives you, sometimes he gives you the roadmap to what they have in common. Sometimes he doesn't, but there's usually theming in these insert sets. And I hate to sacrifice the integrity of the theming to try to put guys only on cards with other guys we don't have likeness deals with. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, could he go all jerseys on some of those? He probably could. And we might do that at some point. I don't, you know, I, I think I, I like to let the artist do his thing. And if we get mass people saying, hey, I really want all jerseys, no faces. I like seeing some of the faces when possible, because that's a better way to describe the swatch if we can do it. Yeah, we can't. We don't, you know, so I think we try to do the best we can within our framework. But, you know, again, feedback to us is the best way to change how we do things, because if you tell Greg, hey, this is what we think we need to describe it well, and we think for aesthetics it would look better if they were all jerseys. That might be possible. But you've yeah. got to share that with us or we don't know. We do what we think is aesthetically pleasing until you tell us otherwise. Awesome. So, guys, anyone, you ever want to reach out, suggestions for Brian Gray, the CEO of Leaf, or Greg Cohn, who will be on the show in, on a, at a later date. Hopefully, Greg will agree to that. You can always reach Brian. Look at the ticker below, Twitter, at Leaf CEO. Send him your suggestions. He just said... He is open to them. All right. Jason says, hi, Jeremy and Brian. Thanks for doing the show. I love the vintage memorabilia you put out. Cheevers especially. So there's a big fan of Cheevers for you, Brian. Will says, are there any plans for the in the game name going forward? Any chance of an enforcers part three? This is so hard because again, I think the, enfor the enforcer sets I liked, frankly, they were a lot like masked men. They celebrated a category in the sport. The difference being that enforcers were never really given the credit they're due because they did the hard gritty work, you know? So I think there's a place for that. I think the biggest challenge is that we're trying to make products that are appealing to both the Canadian and American market and the more casual hockey fan versus the hardcore hockey fan. And doing that with the enforcers, you would have a lot of Americans opening packs saying, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And that's not to say the Americans are stupid or that you guys are too in Canada or too, you know, in the weeds. But I think we'll have to figure out a way to do that. We may even just make some single cards to sell through the side or a, a set. We might do something like that versus a packaged product because I just don't know that a packaged product will appeal to the masses that we're trying to appeal to. We're trying to be very global in the way we present the subject matter and the material that we use and those sort of things. But we have a ton of enforcers, man. So that's not to say we couldn't do something special to make it maybe a website exclusive or something like that. Sure. All right. Next, next question comes from Pierre Luc Julian. He says, by focusing on vintage guys, is there a way to make sure the products don't feel redundant year to year? And I think that's where theming is everything. I mean, Greg has to continue being creative. To date, I can't really criticize him too much. Um, 
I don't think there's a lot of where you get the exact same card year to year with the same theme. Yes, you'll have cards year to year that have eight swatches on them. But honestly, when I sat at the expo, and I'm not a hockey collector deep, I'll I'll buy a few things occasionally. But when I watch those collectors open and there's eight swatches on a card, they flip out. Yeah, they love that. So I don't want to be too sparse with those sort of collecting elements because people love them. People love things you give it to them. That's yeah. That's the whole idea behind this, like this magical eight swatch that you get once every three years. People want that. Let's give it to them. Yep. So that's our vision. And, and yes, we try to be redundant by continually coming up with new themes. But, you know, sometimes, you know, in a world where 90% of the hockey sets that are released are made by Upper Deck, I don't think any of our products are to be confused with Upper Deck, nor do, you, do they feel redundant. If you collect our stuff, it is a completely different collecting experience than collecting their stuff. All right. When is Leaf Metal Wrestling coming out? Asks Irv. There is no metal. We had said before our last wrestling set was our last set ever, but I lied. We have another set coming out this year. The artwork's finished, and we have some killer new names. We're working in some of the um, some of the Mexican and Asian and other wrestling alliances that are interesting. Tons of guys from the newer wrestling organizations here. It's going to be fun. We have some great names we've never had before. And I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be hugely popular, but it's an ultra limited production. Like it's going to be like 120 K. It's like so limited. It'll sell out in 30 seconds. You know, one of those products. So Irv, watch out for that then. Right. All right. Um, <clears throat> Amit, your question is awesome. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. Uh, Jason thinks the themes are the funnest things about leaf cards. So there you go. Some feed, some uh, positive feedback. on that. Say. I, his picture down here, that's my funnest thing tonight. I love the picture. So that's, I'm going to add that to my themes. I like that. <laughs> he likes the picture of – that's his wife That's his wife Jordan on the left, and that's his Jason on the right. Either that's, friend that's my funnest theme for the night. All right. So let's see. I want to get – the comments are coming fast and furious, we're, and we're still probably about uh, four minutes behind on them, guys. So I'm just going to – well, Greg has a few things to say here. I've started to go all jerseys. If the majority is going to be jerseys, if it's 50-50, I will stay mixed. So I like that rule. Good I job. like that guideline, Greg. Good job on that. Uh, we've we've had enforcer-themed inserts like Dirty Dozen and Hard 8 and then the game used. Awesome. Brian says, have you considered somehow linking memorabilia to the product before it was cut out, like a picture of the jersey or stick on the back? I like that. I mean, Donners did that back in the old days. Um, again, much of this memorabilia was acquired in our in-the-game purchase. And so because there weren't images taken that were card quality back then, we can't make, like, make it happen now. I suppose you could find a few of the newer items we bought, like we bought a Bobby Orr jersey a few years ago that we've almost finished cutting up. You know, things like that where we had pictures. But again, it kind of goes to what Jeremy said earlier. It's very hard to mix and match and have a hodgepodge. We want to try to make it somewhat homogeneous the way we present it. Now, what would be cool, though, is if we had, let's say, Marcel Dion's 500th goal stick, and it was a historic piece of memorabilia for a reason, that might be a unique opportunity to put a picture on the back because it's the actual stick or jersey from a compelling game or event. And that makes sense. And I think we've all, as collectors, we've always wanted the backs of cards to to go back to the way the way they were in the early '90s, when you know you had a, a a totally unique and different picture on the back of the card of the player than you saw on the front. Just 
takes me back to the early upper deck cards of 1999, the first, you know, when they first came out and all that. Um, That was really cool back in the day. My understanding that it's quite expensive to all of a sudden start putting unique pictures on the back of cards. And if you had to change up the back of every card from a certain series or, or a form, as you call them in the business, does that does that add significant cost to the production? Well, see, here's the thing. And again, I'm not here to speak for a product. For them, it wouldn't because their print runs are big enough that it's a negligible amount of money. If you figure an image costs about $75 and you have, you know, 500 different cards in the set, theoretically, it costs you $37,000 to put new images on the back. The problem is with our very small print runs, because we make we make incredibly small print runs. Because of that, the cost would be prohibitive. And already with the exchange rate, I feel like cards are as expensive as they need to be right now. I can't imagine raising prices in a COVID world with the Canadian dollar in a, in a precarious position as it is. We've yeah. got to be thoughtful of that. It's not just American people collecting cards. Yeah. So we have to try to price and be considerate of things that are out of our control, whether it's COVID or whether it's a weaker Canadian dollar. Right. Fair. The next question um, is too big to put on the screen, but Richard Ho asks, if you buy a license to use a photo of a particular player, say off a of Getty Images, do you still need a deal with this with the depicted player in order to use it in your product? Yeah, that's the question. Yes, and I mean, we don't, we don't buy from Getty because that's part of our issues with other companies is the fix has kind of been put in where we can't buy images from Getty. But where we buy images, we still have to have a player deal. Usually, we don't have this is a whole other discussion. I don't know that we have to have anybody's rights to put them on a card. I think there's a First Amendment right to use an image and to use treat a card like a miniaturized newspaper that's used for ed- information and educational value. But all that aside, we typically would only try to buy an image if we had the rights to a player. All right. Fair. With that being said, I think you know I think we do a good job of getting as many deals as we can. And the ones we can't, we focus on just being creative. Awesome. All right. Irving, very happy to hear about the wrestling stuff. Woo! Tim Win- Tim Witzman says, hey, Brian, just want to say I'm a big fan of Perfect Game and ITG. Keep up the good work. Thanks, brother. Very nice. Al G asks, would you ever consider looking back at some of Dr. Price's earlier seasons, like Superlative Ringleaders, All-Star Quads, and updating them? I have a feeling that might be a better question for Greg, but if you want to take yeah, it, please do since he's listening let's do that but let's don't make those sets let's make those inserts in those sets all right superlative ringleader is a piece of superlative let's make all-star quads a piece of in the game news let's find ways to take some of those neat sets because people love them and i think if we talk to dr price he might be willing to let us use even some of the designs so that we can add on to wouldn't it be great if we could add on to what he did so yeah. if you collected all those old inserts we updated it with more modern players so that your collection continues I think it's a great idea. Algae, that's exactly what we need. We need someone to say, have you thought about doing this? We've thought about it. But now someone said, we want to see an updated, refreshed breadth of names possible in these things that we only have now 10 years later after Dr. Price. Yeah. Great. You know, five years after Dr. Price. All right. So uh, actually, that's great. We've gotten to the bottom of the... Uh of the comments for now. And if I'm sorry, anybody out there, if I missed anything, I apologize, but we want to change direction now on the discussion. We're at the, we're just past the hour mark. I think it's a good time to uh, let's start switching away from your, your role within the game. And let's talk about what's going on in the hobby now. I mean, 
We've seen an absolute blow up recently as it as it applies to the key rookie cards, like the key key guys, the Frank Thomases, the Emmett Smiths, um, those early 90s from the mass production era. We're seeing a blow up in the value of Michael Jordan. Bass, like Scottie Pippen's rookie card is up eight times this year alone. It's insane. Uh, LeBron James' rookie card is up five, six times in the last six months. Like things are going pretty crazy. If you're sitting on these cards, you're really happy right now. What are, I mean, I see you in some other, in some Facebook groups. I see you putting out offers to buy cards. You've been by my booth at the National and the Expo a dozen times and and spent significant dollars at my booth among other guys. Mm -hmm. What are, let's talk about the state of the hobby right now how COVID-19 has sort of impacted it or not impacted it for that matter. And what are you doing right now to kind of fit into what's going on? Well, you know, I did a special uh, video podcast thing um, right when COVID hit. And my first warning to collectors, I I believed in a bull market for years now. I've been telling people we're in a bull market. It didn't really go parabolic until recently, but it was going up steadily the last two years. We've known this. We've seen it. I predicted it a couple of years ago, and I got lucky it was true. I'm not going to say I'm Nostradamus, but I call it pretty much the perfect time. But uh, but besides that, I think when that happened, I warned collectors. I said, if you're if you're going to need money for the next 60 days, I'm going to advise you to sell now, no matter what happens, because we don't know what's going to happen. And that was the very bottom in the market was that week, because things did drop some that week. And I think my call was right that if you needed money desperately, because we didn't know where COVID was going, we needed to sell some stuff and be safe. Right. And then immediately after that, one week later, the market took off again in a in a in a rise that can only be described as parabolic. Why? Now, here's here's what I think. I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, you pointed out very astutely that it's these guys from the nineties and our generation. That's that's eighty percent of it right there. The guys who are investing, and yes, there's a ton of outside money coming into this business, a ton. I talked to one guy this week who's been putting a quarter of a million a week into this card market for investors, a quarter of a million a week, and they're just holding. So that's every week, and they're using eBay as their main platform, so they're spending a million dollars a month on eBay. Why? What I brought them in? Dollars this month on eBay. So on eBay and side deals. Invest again. I spent a million dollars in the last four or five weeks because this market, even though it looks crazy, how much things have gone up. Frank Thomas PSA tens have gone from one hundred to three seventy five to four hundred. Emmett Smith ninety score tradings have gone from two seventy five to a thousand. Eighty nine upper deck Griffey PSA tens have gone from four hundred to fourteen hundred. Trout. What about the trout? Yeah, I know I, it's not the same. I'll say the Pippen and Jordan stuff. I'm not buying that whole move because I think that's a little bit artificial, kind of funny business. So I would not be a buyer of any of the last dance players, rookie cards, and to a, maybe Jordan only. But like, I would never invest in Pippen and Robin at this stage. They're horrible, horrible, horrible buys compared to everybody else because they've just gone parabolic, stupid because of that show. You have outside people just buying it on eBay. Like it was Tiger King cards almost. You know, they didn't buy it because it's the hot fatty thing. I say don't fall for that trap. But outside of that, it's all the players we appreciate that have been, and it's they've been way too cheap for way too long. And so, like, even on my if you follow me at Leaf CEO, I actually go on on, on Twitter, I actually tell people when I'm wiping eBay out of stuff because I see extreme value. Yeah. 
So 10 days ago, I posted, as I type this, I'm buying every 1986 Jerry Rice, PSA 8, BGS 8, PSA 8, 5, BGS 8, 5, PSA 9, BGS 9. I'm buying every one. And when I say buying every one, I hit every buy it now, no matter what the price was. Because I looked at the card and they were $55 PSA 8s. That card has been $50 for 10 years. Yeah. So while the rest of the market went up, people forgot Jerry Rice was the greatest receiver of all time. So I literally bought 100 Jerry Rices in about 15 minutes. <laughs> Two days later, auctions are going off at 80, 85. I bought 100 an average of about $60, $55. They're going off for 80. One went off today at 115. Those same cards I bought have been on eBay for almost a year, unbought. But I just had to see the value there. And once someone cleans out those cards, everyone goes, holy crap. I didn't think about that as being a good buy. Yeah. 89 after that Griffey's went parabolic to $1,400. I know. But get this. 10 days ago, Randy Johnson's were $52. PSA 10's in the same set. So I looked and I said, holy cow. Randy Johnson, who's one of the scariest suckers ever, yeah, pitcher, not as popular, obviously. He can't be fifty-two dollars if, if Griffey is fourteen hundred. Makes no sense. Yeah. So I bought every freaking Randy Johnson up to seventy bucks, and I just bought one today for one hundred and twenty-two fifty on eBay earlier today. So in a week and a half, they've gone from fifty-two dollars to one hundred and twenty-two fifty because suddenly people said these cards have been too cheap for too long. So then that begs the question, okay, everything's going parabolic. Everything's going up. You have to be a real terrible player not to go up right now. If your yeah. card went up right now, you suck. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants you. But, so so but why, yeah. Brian? But why? Why are they going up now? Because right now I think people are saying the stock market has performed pretty well the last week or two or three after the dip. Yeah. But we know this. It's like you invest in what you know. We know there's a finite amount of 86 tops rises. So what I told someone the other day, a guy who was thinking about putting a half a million dollars into the into this market to invest. He's a, he's a baseball player, famous baseball player. And he said, should I invest this? And I said, listen, if you want to go buy 200 shares of Apple, how easy is it? You push the button and you own them. Yep. You want to sell them, you push the button and you sell them. Now, I want to see you go buy $250,000 worth of Ronald Acuna tops updates. And that's a plentiful card. It would take you weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and you would drive the price up 50% doing it. And I said, you know what that tells you? The supply is too small. So if this category is really an investment category, if it's an investment, not just a speculation, the asset base, which people are investing in, is too small. There's not enough. And there's never going to be more. <clears throat> Excuse me. So at this point, I think this parabolic move is everyone is saying, oh, crap. We've taken these cards for granted for too long. And if a shiny Zion PSA 10 is $500 for a prism based Zion, you are not going to tell me that I should not be buying all these classic cards. Barry Sanders scores were 200 six or eight weeks ago. Yeah. 700 or 800 now. Crazy. $200. There's no way Zion is two and a half times Barry Sanders. Bug off. I'm not buying that crap. It's right correctly now. Here's the, here's the shocker, and this is where I'm going to blow your mind. We barely started going up. Oh, really? I, this move is a peanut to an elephant-sized move coming. Because I'm telling you, the cards you thought were so plentiful, like 86 Tops Rices, go try to buy one now. 
It's hard. Go try to buy a PSA 10 Barry Sanders. It's hard. It's not easy to buy a car. It's like Apple. Push the button. Barry Sanders, I'm going to outbid you. Right. You're not getting a Barry Sanders. You're not getting a 90 score traded Emmett. A 90 score traded Emmett, even in a nine that goes for $120, I will bet you you can't outbid me on eBay. Are you bidding on all of them right now? I'll buy every one. Yeah. I'll yeah. take 5,000 Emmets at 100 and a quarter. So I still want to inventory. You can't buy the cards, Brian. I still want to get to the bottom of like why now? Like you, you mentioned Zion five hundred dollars. You can't tell me that that uh, Jerry Wright or one of these guys is worth eighty bucks or one hundred and twenty bucks. But why is it now? And I'm going to propose to you a couple of my theories and see what you think. My first theory is that, well, the first one is the Gary V effect. Gary Vee is a very, very popular social media guy. He's Twitter, he's Instagram, he's Facebook, he's YouTube. He's he's everywhere. And he's a marketing genius, I believe. And he's got a lot of followers. And if he says, I'm buying Mike Trout tops update rookies, I think a lot of people are going to go buy Mike Trout update sure. rookies just because he said that. That's my first, my first theory is that Gary Vee actually does have um, influence over people who have not thought about cards since they were, you know, kids in the early 90s, let's say. My second theory is that with COVID-19 and everybody being stuck at home, we have nothing else to do. And we can't really, you know, if you have, if you've got a million dollars or let's say a quarter million dollars that you could go out and you could go purchase a Ferrari and drive that around and kind of flex a little bit with your fancy car and show off, People with that ability don't have the, it's not a possibility right now because you're not really going, there's no one out to go see you driving around in your fancy car. So I think maybe people would rather put their money into the cards that connect them to their youth and to their idols and to sport and to what's going on with the Jordan documentary or the last dance, the Bulls uh, 97 championship uh, season documentary. And they're saying, you know what? I can buy cards. I can show them on social media and kind of flex a little bit that way. Do you see any? I mean, that's something that's crossed my mind. I don't know if it's true or not, but what are your thoughts? I think you're on to something. I'll, first, I'll talk about Gary Vee because I've actually had a lot of people criticize me because early on, I, have, I, I questioned early on the responsibility that someone takes on when they share investment opinions. And what we would see is we would see a less educated collector go on eBay and pay any price. Like if Gary said a card was a good card, they literally would pay whatever price they had to pay to get it. And yes, he was right on top set made Acunians when he said they were a good buy at $80. The problem is they went to 250 and at 250, they were a terrible buy. Then when they dropped back to 135, as soon as that effect wore off, they were a good buy again. And that's when we swooped in and bought two or 300 cards because that was a better level to buy. We didn't buy it. We bought some at 80 and 100, but we bought the bulk of our current position at 135. And now the card's 180, 190. But I think what we have to do is, Gary is a fantastic ambassador for bringing attention to our industry. So people think, oh, Brian's dissing Gary Vee. He thinks Gary Vee's garbage. Absolutely not. I was going to, me and Gary were talking about doing an event at the National together to be like, in a sense, talking about investing in this industry from two different perspectives, because we see things differently. I find value in a different place than he does. And so I think the key thing I would say is right now to the less educated or new to the industry or fresh money, which is important collector, 
Gary has been a big weatherman in the business, and he steered people to certain cards, and those cards have moved, no doubt about it. To say he doesn't have a strong influence would be me saying that the sky is the sun's not going to rise tomorrow because it's going to rise. It's the truth. I can't deny it. I can deny it all I want. It's the truth. So for me, though, that's part of why I'm sharing what I'm buying with people as I buy it. Because number one, I don't want to be accused of having already bought them all when I tell people something's a good buy. Right. Which does happen sometimes. Guys buy up the Acunas at 50 and then tell people they're a good buy at 80 and then they go to 200. They've already bought their position before they tell you. I put live on tw- on Twitter when I'm buying out eBay of everything. So the guys and can you, get down. And you don't mind doing that even if it might drive up the price on you because more well, people are going to jump on? Really transparency. What credibility do we have if we're not transparent? So I'd rather be transparent. Maybe I only buy 50 rices instead of 100 because someone gets on eBay and gets to buy nine button as fast as I do. Maybe. And some guys did because a couple of cards I recommended before I could even get on to buy, I saw they all disappeared. So there are guys that are listening to me, and I think, guys, you're welcome because we made some money together. you know. But I think transparency is important. So I want to appeal to a different collector. I want to appeal to the more savvy guy that's been around the block who's saying, you know what, I've been collecting forever as a, as a true collector. I should be buying some of this too. Not that I want to be a lemming like the tulip phenomenon, but I believe this is a real investment category or a real alternative investment category, which is important. You should supplement stocks with gold or bonds or whatever it is. It's a simple diversification strategy. It's a diversification strategy. Trust me, everything I own is not in cards. It shouldn't be. And I love this stuff, and I think I know a lot about it. So I'm trying to cater to a different guy who really knows a lot more about the business. And stuff doesn't have to be shiny for you to buy it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like a refractor or a prism or a new chrome rookie auto. Things that don't shine are good investments too. Like cardboard, remember that? 1986 Hobbs yeah. Rise? That can be an good investment too. And I, I just think there's so many forgotten categories and I still have so many aces up my sleeve, cards that I'm looking at where I'm like, golly, could that card really go up to this? I'm trying to think about what a card can really be. Yeah. But this whole discussion, going back to what you say, is I think we're very early in the cycle. COVID is helping a little bit because you have some guys sitting at home who are bored and are buying stuff on eBay. But the big money coming in, it's outside money who heard that goal uh, that Ken Golden sold a trout for 750,000 who heard that a LeBron's 500,000 who heard that a Gretzky is 88,000. They hear these numbers. They set records every time the Jordan PSA 10, you know, yeah, there's a new record already. The one in heritage is at $70,000. Didn't one just sell for 80 grand a couple days ago. Uh, yeah. I think that's the card. $80,000. Yeah. Golden set a record 10 days ago at 54,000 14 days ago. Blowing out of the water. The record before that was like 40 or 36. We weren't even close. Yeah. So the point being, this thing has so much more gas. We're just getting started, kids. You've got a head start because you're already in the business. But I truly believe that when big money – imagine if a guy like Elon Musk, just for fun, then let's throw $200 million into cards. Oh, my God. You kids would not be able to collect anymore. Me either. Because yeah. he would be wiped out. He could buy it. He could – the whole eBay business in a year is not even half a billion dollars. Uber stock trades one and a half billion a day. So for real money, they could wipe all these cards out in one snap and there'd be no cards available. And it's yeah. happened. I think we're early, early in this cycle. So don't be fooled. I don't think we should be fooled into thinking, oh, as soon as life returns to normal, cards are going to soften up. I think this is the beginning of a parabolic move that's going to go so high that even when it softens up, 
today will look cheap. Because there's no reason a 90 league Frank Thomas can't be $1,000. I know it sounds crazy, but if Griffey can be 1400 Thomas could be 1000 and Griffey could be 3000 Why can't Griffey be 3000 Well, I think a big, a big piece that we haven't really discussed, and, and we don't necessarily need to get into it, but is the population and the, the, the global population of graded cards of these key guys. Like how many... PSA 10s or PSA 9s Griffies are there versus the Jerry Rice versus the Zion versus all these guys. And is there, does there come a point where the population gets so high that there is enough to satisfy the demand? Because I think a lot of people are actually stockpiling like yourself, multiple copies of the same card. How many copies of a card do people really want at the end of the day? Because even the, the investors at the end of the day, I believe they need collectors to sell these two because wh- how does the value keep on going up if the investors aren't, if it's, if the collectors aren't eventually putting them in their personal and permanent collections? Well, I'll say the million dollars I've spent in the last five days, a lot of people made a lot of money who invested in those six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, two years, whatever they bought ago. In three weeks, they probably doubled their money. Five weeks, they probably doubled their money. So there's going to be guys like me that I, I intend to provide liquidity for the next six to 12 months unless COVID goes horribly south and scares me out of thinking that the world's ever going to be better. As long as the world's going to be better someday, cards are an excellent place to be because I think there's emotion attached to them that there is more than Uber. There's no emotion to collecting Uber stock. So, so, you know, to me, there's much more emotion in in collectibles. And I feel safer. I don't think we rely on individual PC guys, collectors to move this market. For the market to continue parabolic, it's going to be fresh money coming in. And I think we're just starting to get celebrities and famous people looking at this saying, you know what? Like Nicolas Cage used to collect comic books. Right. He bought high-end million-dollar comics. I think some guys are starting to say, this is kind of cool. Yeah, Cards are cool. Look, it was on NBC last night. They had a thing about the $50,000 Jordan, now $80,000 Jordan. Darren Bell's tweeting about it. Keith Olderman talks about it. This guy talks about it. Cards have been in the news a lot for five years now. Starting with the Strasburg Superfractor in 2010, oh, remember that. we've had card after card after card that has made the mainstream news. Yeah. And every so often it's going to be a funny card. Like we're announcing a fun card this week that's going to be blow your mind fun. It's not an investment. It may be an investment, but I don't think it's an investment. But it's so cool. It will be on the evening news. Yeah. It's that kind of card that will get covered by extra or someone like that. The card will be on there. It's so cool. And so, yeah. I just want to say, and don't forget, in, in terms of big cards that have sold, you know, last year there was that PMG Green Michael Jordan card that sold for $350,000. No doubt. Yeah. And then and then shortly after, the uh, the Tom Brady Gold Contender sold for $400,000. Oh, yeah. yeah. That made the news. And in my opinion, and, and just from my observations, that's when this whole thing really started. And then it amped up during COVID with I think people being bored and um, and, so let me and, give you, and the and the documentary. And let me give you, you talk about that Brady just got sold for 400000 I just bought a regular contender's Brady BGS 8.5, and I paid 14000 Is there any reason to believe that card couldn't be 25000 Like, that's like, that's totally possible. Just a matter of time. Totally possible for that card to be $25,000. It's like, I can almost guarantee, I don't want to guarantee anything, but you can almost guarantee it. I had to buy the card for $14,000 because it is an excellent buy of $14,000. Yeah, yeah. It can be twenty-five, dollars like, And that's what I'm looking at is what can a card be? But you're talking about populations. My number one buy card right now is the Acuna Top Sub Day. It's $175 to $180. 
PSA 10s, the population is over 20,000. There are over 20,000 PSA 10s. That's a lot. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because guys who are buying it are not buying one at a time. They're buying 20 at a time. That 20,000 will be gone before you know it. If that card's not $400 12 months from now, I'll eat my shoe. That card is going to be $400 if they ever play baseball again. Yeah. We saw it with Trout. How many times do you have to see the same movie over and over before you say, hey, I've seen this one? He's not going to be $3,000 like Trout is now. It's 3000 now. That card is 3000 as of like yesterday. One sold for last night. So how can Acuna not be 400 He's the second most exciting player in the game. And he can't be one-seventh the price. He can only be one fourteenth. You're out of your mind. Yeah. That card is $400. I know it. All right. Diversify. Otherwise, I'd put every penny I own in that card, but I got to diversify. So I got to buy a loose <laughs> too. Diversify. Exactly. All right. We're going to a couple comments from Super Striker. So sick of people thinking everyone is flexing. Some of the people driving nice cars or expensive cars buy them because they love them, not because they care about other people's opinions. Yeah. 100% agree with that comment. I think it's in rela relation to the comment I made a little bit earlier. And I just want to say that, you know, I love buying nice cards. I love showing them off, but I love them too. And it's not showing them off for flexing as much as it is. This is my hobby. This is what I love. Let, hate it or love it. I don't really care. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that's fine. And same with people with nice car, anything that you like, you like, you like nice watches, you like nice cars, please enjoy them drive them, wear them. I don't think everyone thinks that that's just flexing, but I think some people do. Definitely not one of those that think that. I'm not flexing because otherwise I got to pay the bill. You know, if oh, I'm yeah. going to show up, no one thinks I'm a, a, a hot shot just because I bought a $14,000 Brady. I see I see 15 year old kids walking around that can buy those cards now. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. There's a kid with like 50 grand in his pocket. He's like 14. I'm like, what bank did he rob him? He kill his parents? I don't know how he got that money. But these but there's 10 kids walking around with 50 grand. Yeah. So Super Strike also says, love Dr. Gray. I didn't know you were a doctor, Brian. The other Brian is a doctor. A doctor in the fine art of cards. I think I'm yeah. studying a card university. Yeah. And if I do, I'll be like a professor emeritus doctor honorary. You know. Right on. But you know what? I, I agree with Super Striker. You are a great guest. I knew you would be. So thank you for, for, for being such a great guest, Brian. It's awesome to have you on the show. Um. Nick Cage Autos and Imagine the Sketch Cards. Okay, I'm sorry that I'm not sure what that relates to, but Wayne, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Um, those back pages, not for nothing, longtime collectors should have these cards already. I think he's talking about the Griffey, the Emmett Smith, the uh, Gary Wright. He's been buying these cards. I know Eric. He's been buying these cards for a long time. And he's so right. This should be a staple in collections or investment portfolios already. And if you're just coming, good news, it's not too late. You're just a little later to the party, but the train hasn't left the station. So you can be like Eric and buy now. You just missed a little bit of the fun. Lots of parties still to go. Right on. The, the next question, I'm not going to put on the screen. It's too big, but Troy wants to know if there's a chance of doing a standalone Sopranos release. I love that. And they did a set, like Inkworks did a set back in the day, but they didn't have autographs of Gandolfini, Edie Falco, Jamie Lynn Sigler. You know, and so they didn't have the best people, and it was a, it bombed, obviously. Yeah. I, I think, honestly, once a movie comes out, someone may try to get a license for that. I actually have a passion for that set. The problem is without Jimmy G autographs, I don't know if it's, you know, Gandolfini, I don't know if it's the same. Yeah. I don't. I love that. I mean, I've, thought, I've talked for years about trying to do Seinfeld. 
Oh. The Office. I still love The Office. I think that would be the Same most here. sad. Like I my mean, favorite show. The problem is these non-sports sets, the print runs would be so small that it's hard to make money. And so the big manufacturers are not going to go do The Office. Maybe someone like Rittenhouse. I would take on The Office because I love that. But See, again, if you, if you don't get everybody to sign, which in our new pop century, we have like four or five people from The Office. But if you don't have Corral and Jenna Fisher and Krasinski and Rain Wilson, it's not the same, you know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Wayne has Wayne wants to say, so when Gary V. A. all get out, what happens? Well, maybe they don't get out. I mean, I'm a lifer. I think Gary Gary's actually a lifer as well. He's he's a he was a collector as a kid, took some years off, and now he's back in. I don't see him getting out of it. Well, I think I think the money that he's bringing in, he does take hiatuses. Like around the national, he seems to be super duper active, and then he'll go quiet for three months and talk about wine, and then yeah. he pitches back up for two weeks and talks about cards, and he disappears again. The fact is. The money moving this market is not just Gary Vee. If you believe that, keep believing that. Because then when he goes away, we'll be cleaning up while you're selling. You know, I, I believe the money coming in is because people have seen this stuff on television. You can look at the numbers on paper. They're not a lie. Cards are going up. Yeah. They may not go up forever. But you know what? This is not the Gary Vee effect. Gary Vee is a piece of a big, intricate puzzle that explains something that's very hard to explain. And the way cards have shot up in the last year, it's hard to explain. It really is hard to convince someone who doesn't already believe that it's true. And Gary Vee alone can't do that. It's the money. The money doesn't lie. No. When the money pours in, it's real while the money's pouring in. And when the money starts coming out, you'll see that, and it's time to sell then. And then someone like me will be waiting at the bottom for you to panic and sell. And then we'll start this all over again. And we'll have it is. It is cyclical, right? I mean, we saw it, we saw a big bump in 2006 across all vintage for the most part. We we see, we see, you know, it's it's like any market. It's going to have its ebbs and flows. It's going to go up and down and there's going to be certain events that really cause it to go in one direction or the other. I thought COVID was going to hurt the hobby. It seems to have had the exact opposite effect. When I'm glad I didn't sell anything. I'm not a, I'm usually not a seller of personal collection items, so I'm glad that I didn't start leaning in that direction out of fear of COVID-19 and where the world was going to go. But it's just, it's the way any uh, marketplace seems to work. Early vintage run when Clementes and Kofaxes made their epic move. Yeah. It came back down. Yes. Thought vintage could never go down and it actually went down, but that was a buying opportunity. Yeah. And I found generally fear is my best friend because when others are scared, that's when I can zig while everyone else zags. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. You go with it. You go with everybody. Else. So even now when everybody's buying, you might say that I'm just following the leader. I, everyone's buying, right? That's why I've got to be buying what other people aren't. Go buy your shiny Zions and John Morans and even Connor McDavid's and Austin Matthews and Jack Hughes, whoever you want to buy. Go buy those shiny guys. I'll take 85, 86, let me use 86, 87 Waz. 80, 80, you know, 80, 81 Borks, Messiers, and Opeachy, 79, 80 Gretzky's, even 72, 3 Opeachy Drydens. I'll buy those cards. You go buy your shiny crap, and we'll look at the end of the day, and you're going to say, man, how did I not know that Dryden was so underpriced at two or $300? Yeah. When when yeah. Carter Hart or whatever is $100 in a young Are you out of your mind? I know. You know how what? PSA 6 Dryden, the same price as a Carter Hart young guy. Well, yeah. check this out. This is out of here. 
Here, here's a random story. I had shown a couple of Bobby Orr rookies for sale a few weeks ago, and I had a guy contact me through Instagram saying, are you willing to do a part cash, part trade deal? I said, I'll, I'll consider any offer. So he sent me an offer with a bunch of Carter Hart cards for a Bobby Orr rookie, like a nice, strong Bobby Orr rookie. And I kind of like, there's no way I'm trading away a blue chip Bobby Orr rookie for a guy who's got one or two seasons in the NHL. Just I would never trade away a blue chip vintage piece for a guy who's got a couple of years under his belt and could have his career cut short at any time. So kind of hear what you're saying there. Do you do you have any cards in your personal collection that are not sort of investment type pieces or that are just there because you love them? I have bought some cards over the that I think are fun cards that I just own for a reason because I, I love them. Um, uh, Benchwarmer actually did some political cards that I helped come up with the concepts for back when Obama ran for office. And one of the cards had Obama and Hillary in bed together with Bill Clinton looking in from the window outside. Yeah. And it's politics makes strange bedfellows. Yeah. And it was so great. And then the other card was John McCain at the podium with, uh, uh, with uh, Sarah Palin on a stripper pole and it said campaign finance has never been easier. You know, and it was just a parody. And of course I got her fun. I like those. That's fun. I have the, the F face Billy Ripken. That's a great card. Yeah. There's a Nettles, a senior card that said a hole on the back. I have that. Cause I think that's cool. I have, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other cards I have. I have eight, 95, 96 SP Dennis Rodman. Cause if you look at the shadow by his pants, yeah, like something's hanging out of the bottom. If oh gosh, that card—it's just fascinating. You show people like, is that really that? I talked to Dennis. It's not. He would be proud <laughs> if it was. But it was. But it's just so great. So I collect fun cards. Most of my portfolio is investment cards. Large quantity at certain points of Chrome Kobe's, Chrome Lebrons, eighty-nine upper deck Griffey's. Right now, I have a hundred or two hundred eighty-nine upper deck Griffey autographed rookies. Oh wow! Portfolio things like that that we know are good buys. Jack Eichel young guns. I probably have a hundred or two. Those are good. He's starting to go up finally. You know, just guys I believe in. So honestly, a lot of my personal stuff is autographed memorabilia that I collect from athletes we've done. Or like I got Harrison Ford and I did signings with Carrie Fisher. I have a Heath Ledger Joker photo in my collection. So I've got cool autographed, which is only like 30 of that are real. So, I mean, I love cool stuff, but I'm more of an autograph collector and a card investor. But I like to gamble. I get in breaks and I buy yeah. So sometimes I'm a collector in that sense. I've opened boxes. I want to have fun. So I'm a collector like everyone else there, but I focus more on autographs for my long-term. Like I love showing these to people and telling people about the time I met Harrison Ford, the time I met Gary Fisher, yeah, Matt Groening from Simpsons, whatever. And then the, the card side, I can show them my portfolio and tell them what it's worth and they jump and they freak out over that. That's different kind of fun. But personally, my love is autographs more than men or more than cards. Yeah. Right so, on. All right. Um, next, the next comment I want to go to first super striker. I, I see your comment. Thank you very much. Uh, all good. My man, Sean Lindsay wants to, he says, I've never literally, I've literally never seen or heard Mr. Gray. I tuned in for some drama. I think I might leave with an education instead. Well, that's nice to hear. Uh, first off, I'm, I'm glad he's never heard of me because half the time people only hear the negatives, not the positives. Hopefully you've been able to make your own opinion, opinion, Sean, and come away from this with, Hey, this guy's either a total nut job or maybe he's been around a long time and knows something. I don't know. But um, I appreciate that. I mean, again, that's part of my job, though, is helping collectors see things in a way they may not see it right now. And it could enhance this whole experience because you yeah. don't have to be just a collector or just an investor. 
There's a whole lot of in between. And I think that makes sense for a lot of people because most people in our club, they collect have discretionary income. Otherwise they yeah. cannot collect this category. Yeah. Another comment from super strike. He says, Gary loves cards. He has a sick personal collection. I think that's in, there was a comment that we didn't get on screen before basically said, what is Gary V prefer? Is he in it for the flip or is he in it for the whole? Does he love the cards or does he love flipping for money? And I think the, the, the fact, and this show isn't about, this isn't about Gary V, but from what I've seen and I've watched a lot of his content, the guy's passionate about the hobby like I am, like like any of the you guys watching are. I think he I think he genuinely loves it, but he also likes the, the opportunity to invest and make some money while collecting things that he loves. He's and got the right idea. He collects and, certain stuff and he sells certain stuff. And he's yeah. I love what he's doing for the business. Don't please and don't you know what? And I personally I'm a-okay with what he's doing. I've got no problem with him. I'm happy he's in the hobby and he's as passionate about this as we are. It's what if you don't think he knows what he's talking about. Whenever his guys start buying up these cards, sell to them. I'm telling you, if you have Rodman rookies, shove them down their throat, right? And Rodman's yeah. my friend. Shove them down his their throat right now. If you don't agree with him or you think he's full of crap, sell the cards. Yeah, for sure. If you think there's something there, and maybe this guy's not a turkey. He knows what he's talking about. And I think he does. Then maybe you don't sell the cards. You have to decide. But that's the best way to show him is sell the cards. Make his yeah. guys buy them. Exactly. The mayor of Canada, Rich Barone, is uh, in the house. Hello, Richie. How hey, you doing? How you doing, buddy? There you go. Here's a question. Jerry Mack says, do you think companies are slowly alienating young collectors by upping the price in boxes set by set? And, I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a pretty strong opinion on that, what I think. And um, But why don't you take it away there, Brian? I would say a couple things. First off, there's two things, two pieces to this. Uh, number one, I would say the prices are going up on cards. Part of it is the fascination of collectors with game used and autographs. That does have an impact. If we could just print base cards, packs would be 99 cents again or $1.99. Those days are over. You want more than that. You want content. So that's number one. Number two, I'm not a licensee of the NHL, but I can tell you a lot of the price of that box you're paying for is the NHL license. You can say, I wish Leaf had logos. It'd make them so much better. But if I did, the price would be double or you would not have half the content in there. That's why all your rookie autographs, all the autographs in black are rookies pretty much because those are the cheaper autographs where you can make some money. That's what it takes to pay these licensing fees. There's not peanuts. Upper pays a lot of money for that. And we, pr we prefer to provide value to our customers and not waste it on the logo because I don't think the logo on the shirt makes up that difference. But, yes, that's a piece of why the prices are getting higher and higher. I would say is the leagues, number one. Number two is the players and the cost of autographs and memorabilia. Memorabilia is not easy to get. Hockey sweaters are expensive. Hockey shirts are expensive. Yeah. Now, with that being said, part two is the content. If it's all rookies every time, I think that can also harm young collectors because they're getting a bunch of guys they don't know, and they're not, they haven't been following these guys since they're in the CHL probably. Maybe they have. But, I mean, I think that's a piece of it too is I think we're – we're, we're really starting to skim on some of the better veteran players because their autographs cost too much. And yeah. we don't do that. That's where we focus. So we just know we have to price that into our products. And we don't pretend to be the brand for kids. Our products are not for kids in hockey. We believe Upper Deck is a licensee. That's what they signed up for. Let them go do that. Yeah, you know, and, and my take on it is that you know, th there are, in you know, in terms of Upper Deck's uh, portfolio of brands, they have brands that are more affordable or cheaper for younger kids. And, you know, sure. money isn't what it was years ago. You, you, we're never going to get back to 50 cent packs or even dollar packs across the board. And 
the other thing to keep in mind is that the companies that make cards, they're not they're they're in cards as a primary business. They're not in confections anymore as a primary business. They're not using cards to sell the gum or to sell the chocolate bars or to sell the ice cream. They're selling cards to sell the cards. And they have to there's they have to pay their employees, they have to pay their their occupancy costs, they have to pay their all their overhead, all their licensing fees, all their supplies, their vendors, their marketing. It's not their packaging. It's not cheap. They're, you know, and they have to make a profit at the end of the day. Otherwise, there's no cards for anybody ever. Well, I, I think the price, that. the price to play, the price to play has gone up and it's and it's where it is, and it is and it is what it is. And I think we're lucky that a, that a certain companies do still put out products that are more affordable where you can still go after that five or six hundred card base set as it was customary in the you know up until the 80s. For sure. And I'll tell you, even for a small company like us, we have to make, I will tell you, it is millions of dollars to break even with our expenses. We have millions of dollars of expenses. So if Leaf made $2 million on its products, we would not make money. Right. So yeah. you understand that the expenses of running these businesses are huge and we're a little business. Yeah. Never mind Tops or Panini or Upper Deck or whoever. They have an expense structure that blows me out of the water. But it's expensive to run these businesses. So that's a piece of it too. And it's just, you know, it's the new reality. The great thing is we can teach kids to collect differently. They don't have to open packs. They can do the smart thing and buy the cards they like or buy the set and it, instead focus their attention on the content of the sets, not just putting the cards in order, but reading the back of the card, looking at the pictures, learning the players, learning the stats, what position do they play? That's a lost art. Because even kids that open an MVP box, I don't know how many actually read the stats on the back of every card. I hope they do. I hope they read the bios. I hope they, you know, that's, I think that would be a great thing to do. Buy them a set if they can't afford to buy boxes and let the people throw away the base cards half the time anyway, and let them go through the base cards and learn about these players. That's what cards were initially anyway. Yeah. And the funny thing, you know, even if kids are going to get started with uh, a brand like MVP or Opeachy, um, it's not going to take long for these kids who are very internet savvy to go online and see that there's actually a whole range of products that are maybe nicer to look at, more fun to collect. And now they're going to start asking their parents for more money. And from what I've seen at card shows, you've got kids walking around with, and I mean, when I say kids, I mean kids in the 10 to 15 year old range walking around with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of cards in their boxes. You just... And I don't, where do they get it from? I have no idea, but there's a lot of kids with a lot of money and they're not interested, I don't think, in the base cards. Not not to say that there aren't people that are. There's a lot of people that don't have thousands of thousands of dollars in their pockets and they want to play in this hobby too. And we want them to be in the hobby because one day they will, they will be, they're lifers. The more lifers, the better. And I think that uh, a lot of these younger people um, that have the money, you know, unfortunately, they're not they're not buying up the MVPs and the Obichis. They're buying up the cups and the and, and the SBAs and the and the ultimates and all that stuff. Everything's gotten more expensive in life though, too. It's like video well, yeah. games, price of playing has gone up. You know, exactly. you do, the cost of youth sports. When I was a baseball player, we paid $120 for a whole season. Now for my daughter's club volleyball, it's 5K plus travel and all that stuff, plus private lessons. It's 10K a year yeah. to do volleyball. I paid $120 for a whole season of baseball. So like the world's changed. So like everything, you just have to keep that in perspective and find how you collect or whatever you do, whether it's collect, invest, whatever, how do you fit into the infrastructure that's real? 
Because if we were back to 99 cent packs, there would be no manufacturers. That's right. And you know what? We couldn't do it. At the end of the day in this hobby, you know, one of the things I love to say when I'm, when I'm set up at a show and a collector comes by or, a, or an investor, whoever, and we start chatting, I, my, the thing I'm most interested in is how do they approach the hobby? What's their angle? What are they doing here? What are they collecting? You know, at the end of the day, there is something for everybody in this hobby. There just is at all price yeah, points. So the fact that people say, oh, the hobby, it's not a hobby anymore. It's not for kids anymore. Well, wrong. It is a hobby still. It's a hobby, maybe more geared towards adults, but what's so bad about that? We're entitled to have hobbies too. And, uh, you know, and there is still stuff out there for kids. So I just, I don't ever buy that whole. We all want it all. We all want everything. We want autographs for our game. We're collectors. And there's more kids in the hobby than people think, just from what I, my observations at shows and trader nights and the big shows, the small shows, there's online, Instagram, tons of youngsters in the hobby. Tons of them. Actually, my my guest this in two Wednesdays from now is a guy who's 21 years old that's basically running a, a, a card business out of his house. You know, he's doing online breaks and all this, but this is a guy that's been coming to the expo in Toronto for probably six or seven years since he was 15 years old. And he's grown through the hobby as a 15-year-old to a young a, a guy who's 21, running a pretty good business. He's built up, he's basically built up his uh his his uh, his stack his 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 chip stack if you will so that now he's playing with big big cards and you know I don't I don't know his history but I don't think he inherited millions of dollars. Guess what I told you in 1987 at New Year's when I bought cards for 88 dollars that was my life savings was 600 dollars. I never right. got money from my parents. I didn't inherit money. Everything I had I made, and you know I built my chip stack the same way as that kid is. Yeah, he probably had more money to start than I did. But he's building his chip stack exactly the same way. And it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me was getting to play this game. It's so fun. Yeah. Best thing ever. Okay. Small change in direction here. Barry wants to know, would Leaf ever consider a made to order or custom card type program where collectors could actually pay you to make the cards that they want? The problem is the cost of photography and all those things. We would have to charge $500 a card to, with licensed photography with a, with a unique design it just doesn't make sense. It really is. And honestly, right now, we can barely keep up with demand outside of the hockey distribution issues that we're currently suffering from because of our litigation. Outside of that, we have so much demand for our products, we can't keep up. You know? And so yeah. it, it's just things like this are the things that go by the wayside, unfortunately, the hobby goes nuts. If we come down to more of a simmer down time, we might get creative. But, or if we did it, we might do it as a very rare insert in a product to make it something truly unique. It's like I, like in the Fanatics All-In Challenge where they're raising money. One of the things was you could be on the Sports Illustrated cover with your favorite player. Oh, wow. So I bought entries into that because I want to be on the cover with Tom Brady. That would be the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. So if we did that, it would be something where we made it such a unique thing where guys like Eli would die to be on a card with Cyclone. Well, you imagine. That's been done. We had a card together. Brian Price had the made made to yeah. order hero cards back in the day, uh, that, and people had the, themselves on the cards. Pretty cool idea. That's not out there, but you never know. We might we might surprise people with that now that someone suggested it again. Yeah, that that would be pretty popular, I would think. Uh, Wayne Fraser says one of my favorite cards is a Brian Gray inscription from the summit that says, "I'm the loudest mouth in the industry." I don't think I wrote that, but maybe someone else wrote that for me. 
Maybe I've got a few. I've got a few of your inscription cards as well. They're they're put away. I, I, I forgot to bring them out, but uh, you were given them. They were they were redemptions. If you open up product at one of the shows, it was the national actually in Cleveland? No, in Atlantic City. Some someone you know actually paid me to sit and sign. They actually paid me to do a signing form to sign those cards because they sold on eBay for good money initially. I don't know what they're worth today, but I know someone we both know sold some for a hundred bucks or eighty bucks. Yeah, that. yeah, for sure, for sure. The mayor of Canada, Rich Barone, would like to know, will Leaf ever get any licensing? I don't think so, because I think all the licenses from now on are going to stay exclusive forever. I don't believe there will ever be competition in any category. Panini's locked up football for 10 years, so they're not, no one's getting that in a long time. Basketball's staying with Panini. Baseball's staying with Tops. The, the only chance of a turnover is hockey, because that's the hardest category. That's the hardest of the four sports for – I think someone could take that away potentially, but at this point, I think Upper Deck seems to be pretty safe because the PA seems to love them. So I don't think anyone, any of these licenses are going to come up. We do have some minor licensing like Perfect Game Showcase Baseball, All American Football, things like that. But and we had CHL before. But honestly, if we have to, if we have to sacrifice the value, the value proposition for consumers in exchange for a logo, I'm going to take a pass on that. Yeah. I think I have an advantage being able to show flexibility and provide value in ways that, I mean, frankly, Upper Deck or no one else, uh, Panini, some of these guys can't show flexibility the way I can. And I like that flexibility as a collector and someone who likes to create value. I think I can do better without it. Well, I think part of that flexibility is because when you have a license, you need to get blessings from the licensor for the product that's coming out that's depicting their members or their logos, right? Is that a part of it? Yeah, and you've got to present and you got to print a gazillion cases. I mean, Upper Deck One Hockey will never be scarce. It will only go up if Connor McDavid's in it. Yeah. You know, because they have to make a gazillion cases and a gazillion formats because that's how you pay the NHL. So I don't ever want to be in a game where my hands are tied and they say, Brian, you can't make cards collectible anymore. You've got to overprint the hell out of them in order to pay us. That's not a fair, that's not a good value proposition. I'm sorry. And I used to be a consultant for Upper Deck and I know what these numbers are. They're very high. They're not good numbers. It's a bad deal. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you do. All right. Rod Booth. Good evening, gentlemen. I use that term loosely. Rod, welcome to the show. I love the new profile picture. Very nice. Very nice. Brian, Amit wants to know, do you know any celebrities who collect your products? Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the funny ones, and and I didn't go and I should have, because I I hear these guys are a blast. The band Slipknot. Yeah. They collect Leaf Metal Draft Baseball. So when they came to town for their concert, metal had just come out. So they bought a case of metal and they were opening it in like the tour bus. And they were like, man, you should come down and see this. So I mean, there's people who do, and I think it's fun. You know, every so often I'll get a I'll get an email from a guy. Like, I mean, and this is not a big celebrity. I know some bigger celebrities that collect who wouldn't want us to say, but like one guy who used to be a football player, Brandon Stokely, played with Peyton Manning for years. He's a master Ali collector. And we were the only company to make extensive amounts of Ali products. So Stoke would send me emails and say, hey, you know, can you tell me about this? Or what can you tell me about this? Because I'm looking for all these stuff. So we've, we've had guys all along. But, I mean, you know, I can tell you there's a major professional baseball hall of, guy that will be in the Hall of Fame someday who may be on television who collects our stuff heavy. You yeah. know, I, I've seen I've seen big cards get sold to big people. But it's, it's cool, you know. A lot of them buy the celebrity-driven products. So I've had celebrities buy their own autographs out of Pop Century, which yeah. I think is really you know, so yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. 
And it makes you feel good when someone you look up to tells you they collect your stuff. For sure. For sure. I remember back in, it was the national, probably in 2013 or 14, I came by, uh, I don't know if it was your booth or someone else was selling that your, your Donald Trump autographs. And I bought, I bought one of them for like $50. I sold it. I sold it a couple of years ago when he had become president for like fifteen hundred bucks. I'm sure they're going for for more now. Now I think, yeah. Were you present for those autographs? We weren't. We weren't. But our deal with him, we paid him. I think we paid him like fifty dollars or seventy dollars an autograph, fifty sixty dollars when he was on Apprentice. Yeah. And it was kind of a fun card at the time, and you know. Yeah. It was just a fun idea to do him at the time, and we had no idea this was going to happen. Whatever. Right. You yeah. get the side of this year on. But it's just those are the kind of things that make us and, and honestly, Pop Century, there's actually a little curse that goes with it because every Pop Century set until last year, three people in the set had died within 60 days of release. Oh and it's so weird because for five years, three people in the set passed away. And it wasn't always old people. It was like Michael Clark Duncan, you know, or Jeff Conaway or people like this that were like 50 something, 40 somethings that would just it was really kind of a curse. I, w- I wouldn't tell celebrities about it because I was afraid they wouldn't sign if they knew that people were dropping like flies after they signed for us. Right. Yeah. We had a good year last year. Thank God <laughs> we didn't die within 30 days. So it was a great thing. Well, you to, to test that, you have to just not run it for a while and see if nobody dies. But that's, that's, then, right? see, that's the thing. So if we took two years off, everyone would have longer, happier lives. Right. There's your, there's your control group, a couple there of years of that. All right, Sean says, and Sean was my guest on episode number three, says, for my son, he just loves ripping packs, period. I can't wait for a day, the day for a Leaf brand that will be mid-end for hockey. He goes on to say, kind of like Opeachy. Well, there you go, Brian. Greg, if you're still listening, there's some more votes for a a, a product similar to that. All right, um, just looking at some more of the comments coming through. Uh, here's one. This might be interesting from PLJ. What is the biggest expense for a company like Leaf to produce cards? Besides things like salary and overhead, and like building and all that stuff. I mean, honestly, the autograph or the mem cost is huge. Okay. For, our product, for our products, the mem cost is pretty massive because, again, you're talking about things that can't be replaced. And when they do come up for auction, you have to pay any price. doesn't matter. So every time a stick comes up of a mega player, we're owning that stick, no matter what it takes. Yeah. The products like Lumber King and Stick Works. You know, we're going to own, if a sweater comes up of someone incredible, crazy, if it's remotely palatable, we're going to own it. Got so it. the mem cost is so high. The autograph rates are not cheap. And I mean, it's just part of the game. We got to pay for those things. It's a lot. Fair. Sorry, I hit that one by accident. Um, here's a good one from Chris West. Another question. How much of the cost is needlessly thick cardstock in some sets? You know, that's one thing that, like, when I open new packs from people from other companies, I hate it when the corners have wide on them and they're too It's A lot of it's they're too thick. And if they don't cut them right, if they cut them back to front instead of front to back or whatever, the card will show some edge wear on these colored bordered cards, which I hate. You'll notice we try to design a lot of our cards so they grade well. So they actually don't show white on the corners. We'll try to use white and we try to use softer colors to hide the tiny touches that hit corners occasionally. But I think there is some cost to that. But again, a lot of it's the efficiency. When you're putting patches in cards, all the patches are different sizes. So you've got to account for the thicker swatches, even if it's a thin swatch. And I know I hate it too, because honestly, they don't really fit the binder pages right. Some cards are thicker than others. 
what do I need? 100 count, 128, 144, 168, 244. They got so many magnetics now. I feel like the old lady who lived in a shoe with so many kids she didn't know what to do. That's why there's so many dang holders and so many different sizes. So I'm with you. Making cards thick just so you feel like you got double the card for the high price, I think that's a little silly. But we our thickness usually depends on the medium or the, the higher end size of the substrate, whatever's inside. Right. You need you need room to package the memorabilia. And I think remember to stick out a whole half inch over the card. Even though occasionally we have like buttons and things that stick out. Right? Yeah, you need yeah. them at times. But we you know, don't there was crazy. There was a trend, you know, back in the mid 2000s where thick cards were all the rage. And I, I think that now it's actually turning back a lot. And a lot of it is because of all the people clamoring for the really cool inserts of the 90s. And now people are enjoying inserts again. And inserts are usually, you know, 35 point cards, maybe 55 if they're if they've got acetate and cardboard. So I think that uh, I think we're going to maybe see more cards going back to being thinner. I hope so. Anyway, Um Here's a comment from, from Rich Barone again, you know, back to the cost of packs. Okay. So no 99 cent packs. What do you think of $2,000 and up packs, Brian? Do you think there's a market for it? Well, I mean, I think in hockey, I think we're the only person in hockey that actually makes a $2,000 pack. Like Pearl hockey is right. We make it 2000, but it's become 2000, you know, in hockey, we've made the highest in hockey product of all time, which is amazing that we don't have a license, but we made Pearl Hockey is the greatest hockey product of all time that does not rely on a rookie like Connor McDavid or someone like that. It's the greatest pure hockey product of all time. So, and that's two. We didn't make it two thousand; it just became two thousand. We charged a thousand or twelve hundred to our dealers, and the demand took it up to these crazy numbers. But you know what? There's a place for it. Just like there's a place for dollar ninety nine MVP packs or two ninety nine, whatever they are these days. Yeah, it's a place for everything. And if collectors quit buying it, we won't make it. But every time I get on the phone with a distributor, they tell me they need more thousand dollar packs and less eighty dollar packs. Really, blows my mind. They want high dollar stuff because that's where the money is in the business. And I know a lot of people like cheap stuff, but it accounts for five percent or less of the sales. All the cells are hundred dollar plus boxes. Yeah, it goes back to the whole thing about the the hobby might not be for kids anymore, but there are products there for them. But the driver is not the kid like it was in the up until the eighties, really. UD one and two hockey are the very tops one baseball, Donruss basketball, Donruss football. Those are the four exceptions to the you know to the entry level. That's what entry level starts for real. And that's the exception to the products that really perform well as entry. Outside of that, no one wants anything unless it's 100 plus. All right, man. So listen, we're coming up on the two-hour mark. I usually, which I mean, this time has gone by super yeah, fast. We're like, but we're machines, you and I. We're yeah. we just you can't stop us. We're unstoppable. Just like <laughs> the market. True enough, man. True enough. So listen, I mean, <clears throat> I'm I've been made aware that at the industry summit, which is an annual event for industry insiders, uh, shop owners, a lot of shop owners attend. And I think it's it's held by Beckett and Beckett brings out a lot of the industry people to come and speak to these owners and help them with their shops. For the last couple of years, you've been giving the closing remarks at this event, correct? And I, and you, as you mentioned, they refer to it as Gray's Anatomy, Gray's Anatomy, the hobby. So to close out the show tonight, I think it's only uh, on point that you perhaps give us your Gray's Anatomy on where the hobby is, where it's going. And, you know, maybe before you get there, so I'm going to sort of, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. 
What have your closing room, what have been the themes of your closing remarks at the industry summit over the last couple of years? And yeah. then where was, are you now? You know, two years ago, I had similar remarks, which were we are in the beginning of a bull market, the likes of which you've never seen. And at the time, people kind of looked at me like, the car market's never really been on a bull market for a number of years, except in 1990. We've never had a prolonged period of, of great prosperity. And I called for that. And yes, I, I'm not Nostradamus. I got lucky and it worked out. I was right one time. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So we'll see if I keep predicting well. But that was my prediction because I saw the rumblings. I saw people starting to really bring this back into pop culture. Right. So becoming culturally, culturally relevant. And that's what has to happen before it can become an investment or mass people come running in. So that was my prediction then. This last year I gave a more somber speech where I basically said, guys, things are so good. But you've got to prepare. You've got to start thinking about your nest egg. You've got to start thinking about changing the way your business works. There's going to be a tsunami, and when it hits, it's going to mow you over if you're not ready. Now, thank God, and I'm, I'm a Christian guy, so thank God that COVID was not the tsunami it could have been. Yeah, It may still be. I hope not. I pray every day that, it, that we get past this as a country, as, as countries, that together we get through this stuff. But this could be that tsunami. And I'm still fearful. You never know. But you know what? I think at the end of the day, if you weren't prepared for that and you were a store owner and you didn't break or you didn't have an internet presence, you just got walloped upside the head. Because yeah. I've talked to stores in Canada that are closing because for two months they haven't been able to open their doors and they can't pay the rent anymore. Yeah. Well, that speech was designed for them not to say that we're going to go through this horrible time or things are going to get ugly. But when things are good is when you prepare for the future, when it's not as good. You save a little extra money. You, you, you diversify your business and create new ways of doing things. So that if any part of the business ever softens up, let's say hockey goes on strike. If your whole business is hockey, you're screwed. But if you're doing all the sports and you're doing non-sports, you're doing gaming, you're doing uh, Pogs or Beanie Babies or Webkins or Funko, whatever the fad is for today. Yeah. You're diversified and you have a better base to work from if things ever get ugly. So my speech then was just think about this because you could get knocked off that high horse that we're all riding anytime. And we did kind of get knocked off a little bit. The great news is people whose businesses weren't devastated because their stores are closed and because they have no way of reaching their customers. If they were doing breaks at night, if they had an online presence and selling on websites and all these things, ComC and eBay and they have a real business still, and they're getting to enjoy this. The guys who didn't prep did. So even though, again, I did not plan COVID, I'll, you know, even though some people think I'm some horrible guy trying to hold hockey hostage with Igor or something, I'm not that guy, I promise. Hopefully you see that after we talk tonight. I did predict that we had to be careful because something could happen. It did happen. Again, broken clock right twice a day. I wish I wasn't right. I wish nothing had happened. The good news is I think we're going to beat this in time as long as we're all smart and careful. My message for tonight is we're at the beginning of the bull market. It looks like we're at the end. Because it sort of does. All the time, you look at these prices, you say, that is stupid. There's no way. You say that probably too. And you're well, a guy who believes in this market. And well, you're I've, skeptical. I've actually got most of these cards that have shot up in value in my personal yeah, collection. Sometimes hey. You sometimes get a little skeptical and say, is Emmett really worth $1,000? I was 300 six weeks ago. Well, the thought that goes through my mind is actually, should I sell this now 
and rebuy it in a year from now when it's lower and, you know, put half that money in my pocket. Like, you know, I got a family, I got mouths to feed. That might be a good strategy, but I'm a collector who, in, who, who thinks about my valuable pieces as investments at the same time. I, I, I don't like selling. I just, I don't like selling personal collection pieces. I, I sell all the time. Hey, Bobby Orr's. You go sell a Bobby Orr. You're not buying it back cheaper, dude. I don't think no. you're buying a card cheaper ever. What you're going to do is you're going to buy high, sell higher, buy even higher, yeah. sell even higher, and then buy at a number that makes you feel sick to your stomach. You have to hold your nose while you're doing it. And then you're going to sell even higher. And then you're going to hold your nose and like you're going to panic buying it. But you're going to keep buying and selling. And what you're going to do is every time you buy and sell, the time you don't own a card, you're missing all that in between. Right. You know, there are. Kramer says, just buy Apple stock and hold it. Don't trade it. Just buy it and hold it. Yeah. You don't have to be a genius to buy a company that has $400 billion in cash that's worth only a trillion who makes a gazillion. You just <laughs> hold it. Yeah. Every time you sell it, you smack your head and say, I was an idiot. I missed that $30. Yeah. And that's what it is now. And again, yes, cards can come down. But if well, you believe in the category, just keep some dry powder. That's what I say. Don't spend every penny available to invest in cards on cards. Keep some dry powder so if everyone panics, you're the daddy warbucks who's there to clean up their panic. But if you use all your money and you spend everything you own on cards and you're sitting on a portfolio and you have no cash, you don't get to enjoy those opportunities when other people panic. That's and true. they will. They'll panic at some point. And smart guys for years have bought up those assets. So I'm telling people, I believe we're at the beginning of the bull run. COVID's a wild card. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, but in the meantime, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm praying for everyone that we make it through this. If we make it through this thing, like we're hoping to, the sky's the limit. And if we just don't, well, a little bit longer. Let's find the vaccine. And you know, just um, on, on ter in terms of the you know buy buy it buy it ten dollars, sell it fifteen, buy it twenty. You know, what about the the Michael Jordan rookie card right now? There was a comment earlier that didn't make it into the discussion where the 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 viewer said, you know, sell your Jordans now and buy them back in a year. What are your thoughts on that card specifically? Here's the problem. The problem, and I've tried this for the stock market so many times, and I, you know, I've done okay sometimes and not okay sometimes. The problem is you can't time these things. So if you bought at the Atlantic City National the last time we were there, Jordan rookies and PSA 10 were 30,000. They dropped to 16. Yep. Like in six months, they lost half their value because they got hyped up into that show. All 86, 87 had gotten hyped up. So they got up to 30, and then they dropped to 16. I bought 10 Olajuwans at 1,500. They dropped all the way to 700. So I lost half my money if I had sold them. But you know what? Those Olajuwans now are 2,500. Wow. Those Jordans are 80,000. So, yes, you might have dodged that bullet of the drop. But if you're that good that you can time the bottom every time, then I have a position at Leaf that I would love to bring you on as long as you can guarantee you'll be right every time, yeah. I will pay you very handsomely. Because to me, the only way I've been proven to be right consistently is buying cards that people don't see the value in. And then when I start buying them and they see that, they suddenly see the value. Yeah. 90 score traded in at PSA 9, 89 score Sanders, 9's the cheaper version, Rice, Marino, LA, Young, Montana. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, um. <clears throat> Uh, an expo goer, Nick Semino here says, Mario Lemieux rookies. And the reason I put that on screen, Brian, is because I remember at the Atlantic City National two, three years ago, you and I had a discussion and you were buying up all the Mario Lemieux PSA. I think you said 
you had like half of the print run. I had 13 of the 26 PSA 10s, and that was one I lost money on. And I did good because I didn't lose the most I could have lost. But I they've now bounced back a little bit, haven't they? I bought them for 13,000. And this is a great example of trying to time it. I bought them for 13. I sold them for 10,800 to pre war, all 13 of them, one shot. Then they dropped to like 7,000. And now they're back to 10 or 11. When you sold them to, to PWCC, you sold them through them or you sold them they to? Bought them. They bought them outright because they said, and, and they're right, having that many of a card, there should be a premium to having half the population. And now at the time I didn't agree, but today I agree 100% because I see these investors coming in. And if they could buy 50, 89 upper Griffey PSA 10s at once, they would pay over market to buy 50 at once. And his statement, like PWCC or not, Brent is correct that we should think of our cards as having power and a position and a strength to having a core concentration. There's a value to being able to buy a bunch at once. And I learned from that. And it, I, there's a lot of things I've learned not because I see a lot of their you know, publicity and things that are bad. But even someone who you may not agree with their ethics, they can say things that are right. And that was right. Their strength and power of a position. I love Lemieux rookies, by the way. There's no way he should be as cheap as he is compared to Gretzky. It's stupid. I, I agree 100%. I think that I think it's probably one of the best, but especially in PSA 9. I mean, you can get a PSA 9 for just under 1000 bucks US right now. I think it's an absolute steal. Oh, yeah, I've been buying Opeachy. I've been buying lately. I, I quit buying them recently because they went up too much. I was buying Opeachy 8s for a 250 300 That's, That's cheap. And now That's that I'm at 400 I think the train's left the station. I'm out on that one. I'd be a seller. Probably just because eights are not, you know, they're okay. I'd probably sell them here. Just I wouldn't buy anymore for sure. I'd wait. All right. I want to. There's a question that came up before. I've kind of been pausing on bringing it in because we're we're over my usual time. But hey, there's no rules here. So uh, Michael Lewis. Okay. Anyway, do we even have days anymore? It's like no. Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Thursday. It's like they don't even go in order anymore. Yeah, no. It, it's March 73rd today. That's what That's it, it is, right? Okay. I'm not asleep yet. All right, so here's a question, Michael Lewis. If you, This is a good one for you, Brian. If you have $5,000 to invest, do you choose a mix of old guys like Griffey and Frank Thomas or new guys like Tatis, Hura, Eloy, et cetera? What's a smarter investment in your opinion? I mean, here's the thing. You have to know what your risk tolerance is. The negative about all those guys you named at the end, the Eloy, Tatis, Huera, um, Eloy hasn't really popped like the other guys. Eloy's you can buy 9.5s for 300, three and a quarter. That's still reasonable compared to Tatis, who's 700, Vlad, who's 800, uh, Juan Soto's 1,200, Acuna's 1,600. Like, if your risk tolerance is humongous and you can handle a beating, because you can get beaten on those. You don't believe me? There's a lot of guys who bought guys that are worth nothing now for huge prices. So you can get your butt kicked. So if you're ready for a lot of volatility, the new guys aren't bad. To me, these guys that were the guys of our generation. And again, I'm giving you the laundry list. Look at my Twitter. You'll see the names. Marino Montana, Elway, Rice, Young, Barry Sanders, Troy Eggman, Emerson. Then if you want to go a little farther, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. Even Tom Brady, the lower end ones I still like, even at these crazy prices. What about Drew Brees? Breeze is good. Breeze is good. Yeah, I, I don't like the cards that I, that are good buys because they're not – the cards of his that are hard are really hard, and they're good already. They're really expensive. 
What's your favorite hockey card right now besides, say, Mario Lemieux, just because we already talked about it? I have a lot of Connor McDavid Young Guns, and I think that card is still a card that is too cheap. I do think it's too cheap. There are a gazillion printed. A gazillion. A veritable gazillion. Well, what, how many? How many do you think? More than you think. Whatever Put a number you on think, it. Give me a number. Give me a number. We want a number. You pick a number, I'll say more. I don't care what you say. 25,000. Oh, my God. Are you nuts? There are 25,000 in tens. More than that in tens alone. <laughs> I will bet you, and again, I have no knowledge. So I'm only guessing. If they made one Connor McDavid, they made half a million. Quarter of a million. Okay. Half no, a million. Just curious your thoughts on that. That's why they're cheap, because there's a ton of them. Okay. But I think there's value there. There's value in that card, not because it's just McDavid, but because – Again, it's a modelless Griffey. That's not my favorite hockey buy, frankly. If I'm buying hockey, I love Lemieux here. Just love him. I think he's exceptional. I think if I'm buying newer young gun type guys, I think Ovechkin's too cheap. He's still half the price of Crosby. He's 70% of the price of Crosby. He's not anymore. He's got but I mean, Crosby is like 13. What is a PSA 10? Crosby's 12 or 1300, maybe. It, it's doing like 800. Crosby's in the last couple of weeks are doing like between 12 and 1400 dollars for a PSA 10. Yeah. Ovechkins are doing more. Ovechkins are outselling Crosby's. Okay, yeah, Honestly, they should be. If he wasn't Russian, they would have already been higher. Probably. But that's a great card. O- Ovechkin is probably going to end up being the best of this group of guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last. Last yeah. comment here before my final question. Chris West thinks there's easily over 50,000 uh, McDavid rookies. Okay, fair enough. Brian would say more. 110 pounds. Trust me, there's more than 50,000 Gretzky rookies. There's no chance. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, McDavid's way more, way more. Michael, you are welcome. Thank you for joining the show. Rod agrees. Ovechkin is outselling Crosby. No doubt about it. OVBGS95 says Nick is worth more than Crosby. Right now they are. Those have gone, those have gone nose for nose over the years. They've all they're, they're at any given time, they're they're um one's one's outpacing the other. Brian, here's a question from me to you now. What is your preferred slab for your cards? Do you prefer a, a PSA slab? Do you prefer a Beckett slab? SGC? Where do where do you stand? Um, a lot of the stuff I'm speculating in is PSA. I will say that their grading has gotten looser recently. I can show you some cards that I'm buying that are in PSA 10 holders that would be BGS 8.5s or 9s. Uh, it's centering is where PSA is dropping the ball, I think, a little bit right now. That makes me the tiniest bit nervous because I think the pops on some of these cards, like look at Zion's, the centering, they're not doing those right. Luka Prisms, Luka Doncic Prisms, they're not judging the centering right on those cards. They're getting it wrong. So to me, I think the value lies in BGS. I think the market's starting to bring those up. BGS is BGS cards are starting to pick up some ground. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be comp because of the because of the um, registry and things like that. I mean, there's things PSA had that Beckett doesn't. Yeah, for sure. I personally find in finding better investment value in BGS only because the pricing right now doesn't reflect what I think the long-term value will be, but the parabolic moves are favoring PSA right now. And do you think SPC I'm not falling for? That's a, that is one where, again, if you found out that Wendy's and Burger King and McDonald's, all of them ran out of beef. The only place you could get a hamburger was crystals and then, but they make horrible hamburgers, but you want a hamburger, you'll have a horrible hamburger. It doesn't make the hamburger better because they can at least serve you. 
But don't you you recognize though that SGC has been around as long as PSA and yeah, they in pre-war and in pre-war I think they are pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I would again I'd pick PSA over them in pre-war, but I would take them over Beckett in pre-war. When you're coming to Zion's, if you send a Zion prism that's nice to SGC, I don't get it. I don't get it. You get your card back fast, you'll get half the price. And honestly, they're not new card. I don't like the label. I don't like the prestige. Because putting a 10 on a mint and on a pristine and just a little gold bar above it being the difference, that's stupid. So for a card to command three times the price, you would think the label would tell you it commands three times the price. I just think they're turning orders around faster right now, and people like that. So if you want cards slabbed in your collection, super. Let them slab them because they'll turn them around in three weeks now. While Beckett and PSA are bombarded. But guess what? There's a reason why there's no line in the SGC drive through And PSA and Beckett look like Chick-fil-A. And the lines around the building three times. That's because the food there is good at Beckett and PSA. Sure. And at SGC, it's just cheap, and there's no weight in the drive-through. Okay, so well, I'll buy some SGC for my products, but I don't go crazy only because you know I'm not I'm not buying on that. And they're doing a great job of promoting and hyping right now. I'm just not buying into it. They will not be in my investment portfolio for any reason. Fair enough. Just wanted to know your thoughts on that. It's been a hot topic lately. I thought you'd be a good guy to weigh in. All right. Listen, I think that's, this has been a great show, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's been a great hanging out with you. Thank you so much for joining me and, and all everyone viewing. We've had great viewership tonight. Thank you, everybody. You can follow Brian right there on his Twitter account. Right there. Right you down there. You can follow me on Instagram right there. And I'm just going to let you guys all know again, what's coming up on the show. So on Next on Wednesday, I've got Barry Grice out of Colorado, longtime passionate collector. Many of you know him. Check it out; it'll be a collector's uh, collector's perspective episode. Then on May sixteenth, Tim Getch, the owner of ComC, for another industry insiders episode. Then the following Wednesday, May twentieth, is another collector showcase, followed by Brian Price on May the twenty third, and then we've got on June the sixth is the one that I just booked today. It's an Industry Insiders episode with uh, a good friend of mine who's actually somebody who's, um, <clears throat> I alluded to a bit earlier at the beginning of the show. He's, uh, if you've ever watched the TV show Pawn Stars, you've most likely seen him several times on the show. He'll be joining me on June the 6th. We'll leave that at that for now. It's a few, a few straggling comments. I'm just not going to really get to them, but uh, they're thank yous, guys. So Michael Lewis, Brett Miles, Al G, everybody, guys, Super Striker. Guys, thanks for watching. Always appreciate your viewership. The feedback's been excellent. The shows are going to keep going. Hopefully past COVID, Brian Gray, it's been a pleasure having you, man. Well, I'll see you in July on here at the very worst. You know Who knows? Maybe you can squeeze me in in July. I hope so. We'll get you back again. We'll get Greg going on here uh, sometime in June or July as well. Thanks again, everybody. We're going to sign off now. Peace out. Brian, we'll see you in the back room. Good night, everybody. Thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.